0: Greeting everybody! Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. So glad you could join us today. Very very special episode for myself and Jim. So without further ado, let me introduce myself: Scott Kelly from Boston. Hey, this is Jim Towns from sunny uh, and surprisingly cold Los Angeles, California. And being in Boston, it is of course cold, very seasonable, <laughs> about thirty-five, forty degrees. So expectedly cold, yeah. Expectedly cold. Not surprised um, at all by the <laughs> <laughs> by right. the weather. So. Um, yeah, very, very excited, very nervous, very, um, a lot, of adjectives I could use to describe this particular, um, episode. So we're doing Frankenstein from 1931 and I'll go through the stars. So starring Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein. I almost want to call him doctor, but he's actually not a doctor because he dropped out of medical school. Yeah, technically.
1: He's not a doctor in the book either. He's just a, you know, they didn't even have doctors at the time the book came out.
0: I always want to call him Dr. Frankenstein, but yeah, Henry, Henry Frankenstein by, um, colin clive Mae clark as elizabeth john bowles as victor moritz boris kaloff of course as the monster the creature as he likes to refer to the monster as edward van sloan as dr waldman frederick kerr as the grumpy <laughs> the wonderful <laughs> grumpy baron frankenstein he's so good um one of our favorites of course dwight fry as fritz not igor he is fritz he's he fritz uh, in this Igor we'll doesn't to... come in until for for two more movies that's right we'll get into that a little bit but yeah dwight fly as fritz uh lionel belmore as uh her vogel the burgomaster and little Mar- um marilyn harris as little maria the cute little um girl who we'll get to oh, floater a <laughs> <The> little <laughs> <laughs> you went there i went uh, too too soon too soon uh, we'll, we'll get there of course, directed by uh, James Whale, who needs no introduction. You know what, Jim, it occurred to me as I'm watching this film. I mean, obviously, one of my favorites. I don't think I realized until I put on the podcast glasses and the more the movie review mindset, really how important this movie was for me. And I think mm. going back, I, I think this is probably the first film that ever scared me as a little boy. And really I just wild, know that because as I'm watching this from kind of distancing myself from the person watching a movie kind of coming in as more of a critic, this hit me and I'm not, it's, it's hard to explain, but this definitely hit a nerve and I'm willing to bet that this was probably the first film that really, you know, hit me to the core as a young boy. It's interesting.
1: I mean, it, it is in its, again, we're, we're in 1931. We're in an, uh, the same later in the same year that, that Dracula's made. We are sort of pre running score throughout the film. So most of the film is, is without music. And that gives it a, an eerie, creaky realism that's hard to, if you're really focused on it, it it's all consuming. It's easy to, to to be thrown out of it from a contemporary standpoint where we're used to movies with music all the way through and stuff. But but yeah, it's it's that thing where you can hear the sounds of the wind and the creaking of the tower and and the footsteps and stuff. It, it, it definitely, I, I can see that. I didn't see it till I was a little later in life, so it doesn't hold that same thing for me, but I can absolutely understand that. It is. And it starts with the music. And I was looking for the darndest time
0: trying to figure out the name of that opening score, but yeah, and I, and I couldn't find it. And I'm sure, you know, if someone listening can shoot that over, but it is just we would love so, that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I've never even thought about where that comes from. I assume it's a bit of a Vivaldi or, a, you know, a classical piece, but I have no idea. I mean, obviously, you know, Dracula Swan Lake was very easy to find. I could not find the name of this, and it is so creepy. And then it gets to a point where it, you know, it changes tempo a little
1: bit, and then you've got those spinning eyes, spinning eyeballs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I you, mean, you get the feeling the you get the feeling the people doing the graphics for the title cards had not seen the movie yet. There's a there's a like kind of a disconnect there, but it it works. It's it it's got its own it does tell you that you're about to watch something very uncanny that you've not seen the like of before.
0: Right. Yeah. It has the, (laughs) has the eyes and has like that ogre, you know, kind of the outline of an ogre. And I mean, there is so many different ways we can hit this film. And again, going through this, I think there's, we can probably pull four or five different episodes, different (laughs) podcast episodes, just of this movie. I mean, we can go into James will, we can go into Jack Pierce, the makeup artist.
1: Yeah. And, 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 but we won't, but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um i get i think probably a good way to to start is is to talk about the book on which the the film's based very briefly sure. uh, not to get too involved um obviously the book was written by mary shelley who was 19 years old when she wrote the book by contrast bram stoker was in his 40s mary shelley had grown up in an unusual unconventional kind of uh, family uh, her mother died very almost almost having given birth to her, her father took her all around the, the continent. She'd eloped with the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley in 1814. Uh, he was still married. They just were you know, concubines with each other until his wife ended up killing herself two years later. At the time she'd written the book, she'd already had a, a baby with him who had died early. He would die by drowning in a lake years later and she she would keep, Barry would keep his ossified heart with her for years afterwards. So there's a lot of talk about how a teenager wrote Frankenstein and, and, and I think I'll do credit to that. But I would also argue that Mary Shelley was not a typical teenager uh, of her time or even of our time, too. There was something she'd experienced a lot of loss and a lot of uh, trials already before that. And she'd also been introduced to famous uh, scientists. She'd been, uh, you know, introduced to Conrad Dippel, who'd used electric current to animate limbs at the time. But the book comes out from an 1816 trip where she and Percy Shelley Lord Byron, John Polidori all spent time at the Villa Diodati, which is a like a little, it's a chateau on Lake Geneva. It was badly bad inclement weather that summer. Not being able to go out on the lake and do the outdoor activities. They spent a lot of time indoors, kind of miserable <laughs> because their vacation was kind of ruined. And they told ghost stories and they had ghost story prompt. We would call them a prompt now to write these stories and her story of Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, came out of that based on partially some accounts say a dream she had of a medical student rifling through graves. Conrad Dippel, who she had met earlier, again, the the guy who animated limbs with with electricity, was rumored to be a grave robber. So, you know, you see the context of a lot of things she'd experienced, the losses and the knowledge she'd gained coming together to write this first version of the the book. I had not realized until
0: much later in my life, Mary had lost a baby Mm -hmm. Um, and knowing that and obviously understanding the story of Frankenstein and, you know, some later versions of the movie where Henry or, you know, Victor in, in some movies lost his mother early on, yeah. and always had this, this battle, this feud with God, a feud with, with nature. Death. Yeah, um, yeah, and- you can see it doesn't quite play out in this movie. I mean, maybe a little bit more in the book, but mm. I mean, if you go across, you know, all the different versions of Frankenstein being made, the kind of the backbone, it's the human. Yeah, The, over, the overarching
1: theme is, is this, uh, this, this quest to defeat death and, and to, to, Become the master of of life and death, and and in so doing, obviously flying in the face of nature or God or whatever uh, uh, you know you want to say, and dealing with the fallout of that. Um, the book was adapted into a stage play, performed quite a lot, quite often. the The actors who played the Frankenstein and the monster would play those characters for a while, and then. If they After a few weeks, they would flip. The play sort of took it into a more of a Jekyll and Hyde thing where the Frankenstein created like a shadow version of himself. Thomas Edison did a, a version of Frankenstein, which is largely lost. We do have a little bit of footage of it where the monster is created in this kind of alchemical uh, fire kind of thing. Based on the success of Dracula, uh, Universal obviously you know, went after this as another property that was based on a beloved story. And I think, because you have to really, Universal is trying to pitch horror as a legitimate medium. And and the idea of horror as a name for this genre, that nomenclature hadn't barely even quite existed at this point. They were called thrillers. And I think the idea of basing it on a a respected piece of literature uh, like this, or like like Dracula, or like Hunchback of Notre Dame, gave it a little bit of a credibility, and and so it didn't wasn't seen as scandalous. and I think it probably helped them get past some censorship and. and. So,
0: Carl Lemley, who is basically the owner of Universal. Was not a big thriller fan, as Jim had mentioned. The word horror really hadn't come out until about 1934, 1935. So Kyle Lemley, you know, most of his pictures were war-based, and he had a son, Kyle Lemley Jr., who wanted to give horror a shot. Was a you know huge horror fan and loved the old stage plays, and you know, as you know, started out with um, 1931's Dracula, which was just a huge, huge success. So Kyle Lemley, the dad, seeing you know how successful and what a money maker. Dracula was basically gave his son Cot Blanche to create this horror movie wing of Universal. And thus begins probably the next 15 years of movie making. So, again, shortly after Dracula, Frankenstein is greenlit. And because of the success of Dracula, of course, starring Bill Lugosi, Lugosi was first selected to be the monster and the actor. And You know, I've heard, and Jim, you can um, either correct me or or add on here. I've heard a couple of different reasons why Legosi turned down the role. I mean, number one, he was kind of um, very proud of his looks, and obviously being covered in all that makeup and having non-speaking parts just wasn't up to to his, um, you
1: know, what he expected of himself as an actor. That it was almost that is the that is the legend that that he didn't feel like it it was a thespian's role, and and that could be partially true. That could be apocryphal. I don't know. You hear things that he didn't want to work with James Whale. Based on the persuasion. But, but the, the main thing I think is that. Robert Flory pitched a this very German expressionist uh, style, very artistic project with Lugosi, and, and and those two were sort of paired together on the thing. You know, you 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 do this in the film industry. You you put a package together with an actor and a director and a, a writer or or composer, or whatever, and that's the thing you take to the studio. Is like here's here's our goal. Here's what we're going to try to do. And it does seem like maybe Universal just thought that might be a little too artistic, a little too extreme, and wanted to find. Someone who is more of a more of a really a, a, an actor's director who who could get a performance maybe more than kind of scene chewing and stuff. What's interesting is we you know a year later we have Murders in the Rue Morgue, which by the way I love, but but which is which is Robert Florey directing. Lugosi in in the in the post something based on the post story. So in that movie, I think we kind of see where uh, Robert Flory, Lugosi, Frankenstein would have gone. So it's right. like, we kind of get to have both of those. We get to see that, and we can imagine, you know. what Lugosi- Yeah,
0: so, and and I've often read. I mean, for those that don't know, so Robert Flory was the first first person in the director's chair, and every a lot of what I've read about kind of the script that that Flory had put together, it sounded very reminiscent. Of son of Frankenstein, and by that I mean the monster was very one note. He was very unsympathetic. Yeah. He was basically just this brooding, murderous thing, not not the Frankenstein monster that we've come to know. Boris Karp, the you know the tragic, um, you know very deep, multifaceted being. So really, I think, you know, and again, when I hear that Lugosi turned down this role, was it the Flory script? Was it the the amount of makeup? Maybe it was a combination of both, but whatever, you know, for whatever reason, Robert Flory walked away. Um, Bella Lugosi walked away and you know, Jim, as you said, they went on to make Murders remorgue. So in their place, we've got now James Whale and I don't want to call him a a, a movie newbie because I think before Frankenstein he had done seventy or eighty pictures. Yeah, tons of, of silent films and stuff. Yeah, a lot yeah, of silent films. So Boris yeah, College has been around for a while. He had a huge resume. Um but yeah, Whale saw him in um you know the universal cafeteria and just you know loved his the facial features and just something about him didn't really know why but airmarked him as his new creature and you could almost say the rest is history well
1: he he did i mean Karloff was unusual looking he was he was british uh he i think on his mother's side had indian eastern indian blood uh in him uh so he was darker complexioned actually and he was not extremely tall. He was five foot eleven. Uh, ironically, Colin Clive is is, is six feet. Frank Stein is, is taller than the monster in this, you know, with the help of, of the, the the cement pavers boots and and, and padding and everything, and that the, the flat top, Carliff gains, you know, quite a few inches in the in the film and, and towers over the to his creator. But he did. He had, he had a certain look, he was very gaunt, he was very slender, at least at this point, because he was a he was a starving actor. He, you know, we we said like he did all these different films, but they were small parts, they weren't big roles. He drew a truck sometimes to, to make extra money, he was struggling. He had a, a, a bridge on the right side of his face of his mouth that he could take out when you played the monster. And this is why you'll see the photos where the entire right side of his of Karloff's cheek caves in in this very skull like manner, it's a very uncanny thing. And, and they accented it with the makeup and stuff. So, so you know, the and we can talk about the the makeup itself in, in a bit, but I think you know, as an whale was a, a visual artist as well, and I think he he caught sight of. Karloff and just thought, you know, here, here's the the raw material I need to make something that no one's ever seen before.
0: And you know, I've seen interviews with Sarah Karloff, Boris's mm-hmm. daughter, who seems very sweet. And you know, it's something, and you, she kind of kids about that. I guess at the day that Whale discovered Boris, Boris was you know dressed to the nines in a you know beautiful suit. His hair right. was done. He had never looked better in his life. And here, James Whale is now envisioning him to be this you know this monster in the film. Be so, perfect
1: as a monster, right? right
0: this ugly beast. You know, and that's something that Boris kind of, I guess, would laugh about. And let's get right into the film, Jim. We've got so much to cover, and you know, we've got to do its give it its due here. So, um, opening scene, um, something very, very near and dear to our hearts. Of course, Edward Van Sloan comes out with the um, that very famous warning comes on the stage, and this actually came out a few years after the film was released because. People are fainting, and they was, <laughs> I guess, the Universal right. folks worried about. You know, there we have pregnant, you know, women in the audience. We can't do anything too outlandish, fear out of lawsuits
1: and everything. So yes, exactly. But you have to do the thing. This this is their disclaimer at the beginning. This is uh, this is like now when you get a DVD, and and the first thing that comes up is is the studio saying that any of the opinions of the filmmakers uh, they don't necessarily agree with, right. So early on,
0: Jim, I've got to give you this is this is all you. So when we we're first putting this podcast together, we we're trying to think about intros and outros and the whole thing. Jim said, "Wouldn't it be cool to have an Ed Van Sloan an intro for the podcast?" Right. So you're hearing this episode or any episode that intro done. I have to give him credit. So um, a friend of mine, Fred Ellsworth, who's a local musician here in Boston, his son Cole does such a cool little uh, British accent. So Cole Ellsworth
1: recorded that intro that you hear on on our podcast. And it's just it's in, in tribute to the Frankenstein movie and to Edward Van Sloan and 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 everything that came forward. And I, I love that. I love that that comes at the top of all of our episodes.
0: Uh, it was a wonderful idea by you, Jim, and just a great performance by Cole. So I'm yeah. so happy to have that in there. And it's such a great yeah. nod to you know not only this podcast and the theme of this podcast, but just this movie and
1: Sloan and the whole thing. So I, I I love that. Cause, cause without this movie, uh, you know, we, we talk about Dracula is the prototype, but Frankstein really is the prototype of the modern horror movie. And without this, we don't have all the other universal films. We don't have the hammer films. We don't have, Uh, The Roger Corman, Vincent Price, you know, Poe cycle. We don't have modern slasher films, anything like that. So we owe a lot to it. Absolutely. This is the birth of a lot of different genres and um,
0: not so much genres, but just movie making, I guess, is the the better term for it. So so let's get right into it. So we've got the warning and then it opens up and just a beautiful scene in the graveyard. Um, So somebody's Mm. dearly beloved is being buried. And we see Frankenstein and Fritz. So it's funny, you know, we, I guess the layman, when you hear, you know, we talk about Frankenstein's, um, his hunchback assistant, probably nine out of 10 people would always say, oh, it's Igor. But it's, it's yeah. not Igor. Igor, to your point, Jim, came a little bit later, played by Lugosi. Bella Ghost. In, Bella in Son of Frankenstein,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just um, a marvelous role. But no, the dwarf here is played by, by Fritz, who actually wasn't in the book. Yeah, he, he has no assistant in, in the book. He, he. You know toils long endless nights by himself to to create this because he's creating this in secret. I don't know what the origin of of bringing in uh, Dwight Fry as a hunchback is besides the fact that Dwight Fry was a, a famous character in in Dracula. So maybe let's bring him back. And he's got a he's got like a it's almost like a Beatles wig. I mean he's got this mop top kind of thing and he's unshaven and he's he's got the 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 cane and the hunch and stuff.
0: The first mention of of this character was in a play called The Fate of Frankenstein. So it's actually oh. the play that Universal bought the rights for.
1: Oh, to that's make neat. This.
0: Yeah. So that was the first time. It might have been 19, I'm probably going to flub up the date, 1928. But that was the first time
1: that the character Fritz had ever been on put on a, a printed page. Good stuff. Can we talk about the differences between literature and, and film? Uh, two art forms that are similar in ways and very different. In literature, you can have Henry or, or Victor Frankenstein in the book. You're hearing his thoughts, right? There's an internal monologue of him ta- describing what he did and how he built the creature and what, what he went through and everything. In a film, unless you have this dubbed-in silent narration of the character, you need someone else for the character to talk to to explain what's happening. And this is why you end up getting sidekicks and foils and stuff like that. Because like in, in the comic books, too, like you can't have all internal dialogue. You actually really need someone to explain the exposition and, and the plot too. And so, so you end up with, with other characters like this, but I think it's great because it, it, it gives a, a neat back and forth of, of, you know, the master and the assistant. And, and as far as I know, this is probably the prototype of the mad scientist and his, and his assistant. And we see it all throughout following up in, in, in horror and, and in cartoons and movies and everything. Um, even universal ends up, they keep giving What is it? is it? Is it house of Frankenstein that, that the doctor has the, the hunchback female assistant? Oh, House of Dracula. That's if, House of Dracula. Yeah, so actually yeah. House of Frankenstein, he's, I forget his name, but um, Daniel, the
0: um, oh, yeah. hunchback, where Boris plays the doctor in that one. But yeah, the woman hunchback is uh,
1: House of Dracula, the nurse. And, and luckily, the, the the symptoms, that problems that cause hunchback have been largely eliminated from, from the civilized world. But a, this was sort of a go-to occupation, apparently, for hunchbacks at, at the time, right? I mean, if you, <laughs> if you have this problem, look, <laughs> there's this one occupation you're, you're perfectly suited for. He wasn't treated too well, but you know,
0: the doctor can't be, you know, it just wouldn't be right for, for Henry to get his own brains. You're, he
1: really needs kind of a too. to, yeah, yeah, you know. exactly. That's the, to do the dirty work and that, and, and cut down the, the, the hanging corpses from the gibbons and right. stuff, you know, that, and, and help push the cart and stuff. So yeah, he, he's, he's driven a little crazy by him. So, but, but I love, you know, so, so there's this, there's this burial of this dearly beloved and there's bells ringing and, and prayers being chanted. Henry and, and Fritz wait for the people to, to leave and for the gravedigger to, to bury the coffin and then you know, strike his match, light his pipe and walk away. They go in and they start digging up the grave. And there's this great moment where Colin Clive digs his shovel into the ground and throws dirt over his shoulder into the, this skull-like death statue that's standing in the background. So he, he literally throws dirt in the face of death. And I think that's that just goes to the heart of what he's trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah, you know what? And I, I'd always laughed at that as a kid and even as a younger adult, not really understanding any kind of significance. But yeah, doing some research for this podcast and again i don't know if it's true or not but apparently that was something whale had requested that oh, clive yeah. you know take a shovel full of dirt and throw it into the face of the grim reaper yeah. spitting it's very at, purposeful i never
1: really thought of it that deeply but man how yeah. symbolic that's that's it's what it's, it's his goal so they they uncover the the cadaver in the, in the in the grave load it into a cart take it up a hill um they're headed back to he so in the book victor frankenstein in the book, Doctor Frankenstein, the Frankenstein character, the man who creates the, the creature's name is Victor Frankenstein. In the movie, they've changed it to Henry, and they've they've given his friend the Victor name. They kind of flip flop the names. There's a lot of thinking that 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 came as a between the wars. There was a lot of enmity for for German German Germany and Germans uh, uh, in America, and this is universal sort of relocating the the setting of the story. To some some place that is slightly it, it, it takes place in the town of Goldstadt, which I don't believe is a real town. So you, you you adopt this kind of vaguely German setting and vaguely Germanic people as as your as your as your location and your characters for this film and moving forward and i think this sort of creates that kind of scott you and i talk about this uh geographic sort of vagueness that the universal movies take place in and i think this is one of the the first really important steps in in that creating that idea that like in Frankenstein i the wolfman where lon Chaney Jr. and maria Skaya take a take a cart from wales to europe right (laughs) they ride a horse-drawn carriage to europe they play with that, and it's and it's fun. I, I it's something that I love about these films.
0: Me too, especially Universal. It truly, is timeless. Um, it could be anywhere, anytime. Yeah,
1: yeah. But, you yeah know, I've yeah, often
0: read. Yeah, I mean, after the I mean, Mary Shelley's book, there were a number of different play adaptations of Frankenstein. As you said, Jim, in the book, doctor's name is Victor, and he has a friend Henry Cavell. Mm-hmm. And over time, the play, and I, you know, that could be it with the sensitivity with the war. But you know, over time. Different plays have changed up the name. So it actually happened before Universal got this. I think, again, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, that the play that Universal purchased to create Frankenstein, I believe the doctor's name, I I could call him the doctor, but the person that dropped out of medical school was named Henry. and they Was named
1: already Henry at that point? I believe
0: so. I believe so. And again, great time for somebody to correct me if I'm wrong. But I believe that the play that they bought, his name had already been changed to Henry. But yeah. I
1: mean it got to universal part of those reasons, but yeah, but, but absolutely it makes a lot um, of sense why they would do it. Sure. In the book, the monsters created in in the in Frank Saint's dorm rooms. Here we've relocated to a much more picturesque tower. That stands in the middle on the top of a hill in the middle of nowhere. And it's just this, this amazing, iconic shaped narrows towards the top and it's built with these huge stones and stuff. We have no idea what it's like. It's a keep, basically. We don't know what its original intent was or what purpose it was built for and how Henry you know, took it over. But this is the location that he's chosen to, to go and further his experiments once he's left the college. Right.
0: So I think one of the, one important scene before we leave that graveyard is you had mentioned Fritz climbing up, they find a dangling corpse Yeah, Fritz climbs up, cuts it down. And Henry immediately goes over to inspect it. And his diagnosis is, well, he's got a broken neck. The brain is useless. We must find another brain. Right. And we cut to Goldstab, the Goldstab medical college where we meet Dr. Waldman for the first time. And he just so happens to be teaching a class about, you guessed it, brains, He's got a cadaver laying down, and he's teaching um, the normal brain, and there's
1: another um, abnormal brain, or the criminal brain, has has less convolutions or something. I'm not sure about the the medical correctness of of what what we're hearing about in this scene, but that's fine. And and yeah, and this sets up this scene that for me it's it's such it's such a famous scene, and I think it's really famous just because Mel Brooks in Young Frankenstein recreates it. And he recreates it so well oh, that sometimes yes. it's hard to, to remember which person is which it's so perfectly done with the, the Abby normal brain and everything. Yeah, but, oh my gosh. Um, 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 Mr. Yeah. H- Mr. Hilltop, raise your right hand or right, raise yeah. your right leg. Just. Yes. But Fritz, so Fritz does, he, he, he breaks into the, this uh, lecture room, tries to steal the normal brain, a noise scares him. He drops it, picks up the abnormal brain and brings it back to, uh, to, to, The the tower for uh, for his master. There's a
0: a good working brain smashed on the floor. And we now have Fritz exiting the college classroom with an abnormal brain. And next scene we cut to is Castle Frankenstein, where we meet two characters, Victor Morris, who is the... Assumingly, best friend of Henry and Henry's fiance, Elizabeth. Castle Frankenstein, and Elizabeth is very worried, hadn't heard from Henry, and had just received a letter explaining that he's staying near Goldstadt, which, as you remember, is where they, um, the medical college was, working in an abandoned watchtower um, on his experiments and otherwise doing okay, where he had just been gone for so long. They had a wedding planned, and yeah. Henry had all but disappeared. And of course, now Victor, his best friend, and his fiance are
1: extremely concerned. Extremely concerned. Well, you know, and Victor is concerned, and he's also starting to think about putting the moves on on Elizabeth in Henry's Same absence. So we we have the the typical uh, best friend who possibly is not actually your best friend, but it creates a, a nice dynamic. Victor Morse is played by, by John Bowles. John Bowles was actually a spy in World War One. That's the that's the only you know, bit of trivia I have about the guy, but yeah, apparently he was he was a very brave dude playing this this kind of slightly skeegee guy. They're they're worried about about Henry, of course. This first scene, it's weird. Like you see, there's a lot of cuts and a lot of. And people come in the doors and, and it jump cuts and stuff. Whale's trying these things with editing and pacing uh, in this film. Uh, so so much up until this point, you know, you had a character stand there and you ran the camera and you let them play the scene like it would be done on, on stage. Whale's experimenting with with tightening up dialogue and and changing the rhythms of, of things. Some of it's successful. Sometimes it's not quite successful. But but what he's doing is sort of inventing the grammar of cinematography here. Uh, you're seeing it right on screen there, and it's really interesting. And but then it goes into this very kind of dry scene of of elizabeth and, and victor talking about henry and there's just they move around a little bit and stuff but it's it's very pablum and i'm not sure i have a slight suspicion that maybe whale didn't direct this scene that this might have been directed earlier uh, as part as an earlier version of the film or something like that because whale only came on the film like a week or two before they started shooting right right yeah, you know, it, it doesn't feel at all like the rest of the movie. It's interesting. Very interesting. I don't know,
0: but it's, fu- yeah, I mean, it's funny. and something that, I mean, I didn't make this up. This is just something I've read and I've heard over time. But, you know, Whale's use of um, verticality in this this film, and you see it mm-hmm. a lot in The Watchtower, and, you know, in, you know certainly in Bride of Frankenstein, yeah. the verticality with, again, the the table of the monster um, you know, rising and, and falling. So again, if you open up the scene, right. you've get a close-up shot of Victor, a close-up shot of the maid, close-up shot of Elizabeth, and then it pairs back mm-hmm. and we've got this huge spacious shot, the idea of going for this verticality, this huge room, this towering ceiling, you know, again,
1: these these little ant-like people um, just because of the little way people it, talking about it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's again another glass painting. Uh, the the set only goes up so far, and then beyond that is a, is a, an actual glass painting on a piece of glass that's put very close to in front of the camera that blends perfectly with what the camera is shooting past it into into the room. It's a challenge to get verticality into a film. If you think about it, film, especially now that film is more of a widescreen format, but even then, in a more squared off format, it's tough to show verticality in it because you by nature the thing you're looking at it on is rectangular, is a horizontal rectangle. So between something like this or or say Godzilla movies like that, it's it's always a challenge. And and you see talented directors like Whale like, you know, carried off very well. Yeah, but anybody keep that in mind. Next time you put on Frankenstein,
0: you can definitely, and again, I'm certainly not a filmmaker, but there are certain scenes and especially when we get into the the tower where you know the people walking up and down those long stairs certainly you know once and when the monster is being created and that you know the table rises and and comes down Um, yeah kind of a dry scene as you mentioned so we're kind of out of it relatively quickly we got a little feeling of who victor is and you know certainly elizabeth is
1: yeah what the situation what he's putting elizabeth through this this woman he loves um but they uh so victor decides he's going to go to the university and he's going to go talk to uh, Henry's old professor, Dr. Waldman, and Elizabeth demands that you know she's going to go too, and so they they go and they see, and we now have Edward and Sloan in, in in his offices with the skulls and the test tubes and everything <laughs> like that. This is a really like. The, the the state of medicine within the film like the the state of normal medicine in the film is so creepy and yet henry wasn't able to handle it he had to go more creepy right to, I know. Then, well, you, then think, even, you know like, then even the guys have just skulls all over their office and stuff right, right. i mean um, this
0: is this is henry's mentor so exactly you get skulls yeah. in these like test yeah. tubes all over the place and he's acting yeah. you know waldman i mean he could be like the mad scientist i mean just right totally, right exactly. totally creepy um, and just the way he's you know you just trying to have a conversation with Victor and Elizabeth. That's
1: just so bizarre. Yeah. And he's a little bit of an uncanny guy too. He's not, you get the sense he's not a normal type dude. I mean, he he's on the outside of society, you know, you talking about, you know, this, the cutting edge of medicine and science and stuff, what's going on and stuff. And someone who's, who obviously just off the heels of Dracula now playing another doctor. And, and he'd go on and play another doctor in a little while in, in, uh, in the mummy. So for being, as typecast as, as he was, he's still, I mean, he's obviously he's so enjoyable to have be part of this thing. And he tells them that Henry had left the college, that they weren't progressive enough, that he wanted them to get embodies bodies and he wasn't too concerned about how they got them. And so, right. you know, uh, Henry, you can see Henry's moral compasses at this point had already he started to to alarm people. And it led to his his leaving to pursue experiments on his own. Elizabeth is so worried and sort of based on her appeal to the doctor, they They all decide to all three go and visit Henry and check you know do it's a it's a wellness check, basically, right? Victor and Elizabeth were going to see
0: him regardless, but I think having you know Dr. Waldman there, where Henry just has this, the utmost respect, even though he's right. no longer a pupil, I mean certainly has you know a lot of respect yeah. for Waldman, so rather than just you know Elizabeth and Victor, it's almost like an intervention you know, yeah, the, exactly visit yeah. Henry to bring him home, they elicit the help of of Waldman. he does you know eventually agree to go mm-hmm. with them and try to get Henry back home and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of on the right path here. But yeah, that was very, you know, and Waldman saying, you know, he, you know, he needed more bodies for his experiments and wasn't too, you know and he wasn't too particular about how we got him these yeah. bodies. And I mean, I, I, you said exactly right. Just the moral compass yeah. you know, kind of going off the, off the rails here a bit. And, you know, Elizabeth never even blinked. She's like, Oh yeah, that's, that's Henry. All right.
1: <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, man, oh yeah. That's, that's she's a man I love. Well enough, Right. So, so they do. They proceed to go to the the tower um, with possibly the worst timing ever because they show up right as Henry is about to be ready to finally bring his, right. his, his creation to life. It's just, you know, there's kind of a kismet to it, but... So they get there, and there's a, the lightning storm is is growing. The you know the rain and the wind are howling, and it, you know it's 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 an unprotected edifice right up on top of a mountain. Obviously, Henry and Fritz are jogging around, going all over the place, checking the storm. You know, figuring out that this is the right condition to finally you know do bring to life this this thing that he's been working on for so long that he's sacrificed all these things for. And he, Colin Clive has a great line. He, you know, Fritz is worried, and Colin Clive says, "Is this storm develops as I've hoped?" You'll have plenty to be afraid of before the night's over
0: right um, what a great line
1: yeah you know and certainly yeah. very foreboding and yeah, yeah. i mean even which which implies that he already knows what he's doing is going to be kind of terrible it's an interesting it's, it's interestingly uh precedent i mean even you know as he's working you know they do a test run of all the equipment
0: and you know Henry puts on those those Dre you know headphones and yeah doing his thing and he's like oh you right. know, I want the electrical secrets of heaven so it's always right. it's always the secrets that Henry's after and somebody is withholding the answers and yeah from yeah well, and he thinks something. that's not
1: fair he thinks right. man right. should have I don't think Henry wants to be let's let's contrast him for just a second with Claude Rains's character in Invisible Man. I don't think Henry wants to be powerful or have power over other people. He doesn't want to create an army of Frankenstein monsters. He, he wants to plumb into the secrets that he thinks humans have a right to, to have, which is uh, in, in the Greek myth Prometheus, Prometheus uh, steals fire from the gods and gives it to, to humans, which is why the modern Prometheus is the, is the secondary title of Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein. And that's the idea is that Henry's goals are noble. Even though if if his methods are 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 you know less than than
0: moral, right? yeah, I mean, they didn't flush it out, certainly not in this movie, but there's never mention of Henry's mother. I mean, we meet his his father, so yeah, I guess the assumption is he probably lost his his mom, and you know later movies would I mean that was a a major plot point of the movie, so you can only mention that Henry probably had lost his mother. And very, you know, upset has this, you know, waging this war against nature and God that you know, you know, God and nature had stolen his mother from him, and he wants to
1: even the score a little bit. So. he's kind of taking revenge by taking their secrets back. And everyone exactly. who's lost a parent can understand it. Mary Shelley had lost her mom early on as well, so you know, you you do feel like if he's not justified, you can you can be sympathetic with with what he's trying to accomplish. But I think
0: that's a great, um, you know, you mentioned com- the comparisons with the Invisible Man. Yeah, this feels very very personal. This is not mm-hmm. a power play he's not looking to make. I mean he's already yeah. well to do.
1: He's a baron's son. So, you know, yeah. he's of means whatsoever. He doesn't this, need this, right? No, yeah, exactly. No, right. Um he's not tr- trying to be just famous or anything like that. Yeah, no. He's if he was trying to be famous, I think he'd be more public about what he's trying to do. Right. Um but you know, he he refuses his castle set because he knows what he's doing is is on the sketchy side. So, you know, just just at the moment where they're about ready to pull the pull the trigger on this thing, of course, Victor, Elizabeth, and, and Dr. Waldman show up pounding on the door, and he sends Fritz down, and Fritz tells him to go away. Henry looks out, and he sees that Elizabeth is down there, runs down, and and they let them in, you know, to take shelter out of the storm, apparently.
0: They hear knocking on the door, and again, just timing is everything, right? He's been working months and months and months, mm-hmm. and he's literally, he has a time, like 15 minutes from now, the storm's going to be in just the right place, that right. You know, I can pull down, you know, that that secret ray of life and, and douse my, the body with it and everything, And, you know, everyone shows up. So knock, knock, knock on the door. Fritz runs down again, not sure who it is, um, opens a little paneling in the door. And the first one to speak is, is Dr. Waldman and says, Fritz, it's Dr. Waldman. So, I mean, so they, they know each
1: other. They do. And, that's interesting. I mean, maybe Henry took Fritz with him when he left the institution. That's He's what there. I've always well, yeah, wanted. I mean, was Fritz a student too? Was Fritz just a student too and maybe, you know, didn't have the aptitude or something? Could be. Yeah.
0: I mean, that made me think, like, was he, you know, a, a custodian? Was he? So, so Waldman knew Fritz. Right. He knew him right away. And Fritz knew, and knew Waldman. So there was, I'm assuming, again, somebody from the university that, yeah, Henry took with him. That's interesting. I that I never was kind of interesting. That, and,
1: that. And that's totally right. And that's something I've never, ever considered. Yeah. Neat,
0: neat, neat, neat. So I'm knocked on the door and Fritz attempts to send them away and runs back upstairs. And it's not until Elizabeth, and I'm not sure if you mentioned this right, Jim, but it's pouring out. It's just an absolute, you know, storm. So these poor, poor folks are being, you know, just doused with rain, right. these little umbrellas, the wind is blowing, you know, the weather is extremely violent outside. So they do truly need shelter. And Elizabeth begins shouting up and Henry's at the top of the watchtower He is her
1: and eventually comes down and, and lets them in. And, and they're just in the bottom level of of the building yet. He hasn't brought them up to his thing. And, you know, there, there's some dialogue and stuff and he, he, they're telling him he must come home and he's like, well, yeah, because Victor calls him crazy.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and oh, that yeah. I mean, Henry has a completely that I mean, that totally turns his his attitude around. I mean, he's very like, you know, please just leave me alone. He's kind of anxious. He's definitely frazzled because he knows time is against him. Right. And it's he's like, frantic. He, yeah. Right. He's oh. absolutely frantic. And the minute, you know, Victor says, you know, hey, you're crazy. And then he just stops on a dime and says, yeah, you'll, you know, we'll see if I'm crazy or not. See Come on upstairs, crazy. guys.
1: Yeah. <laughs> come on up yeah that's what he says come on up yeah. um in a, a very kind of contemporary way so he, he leads them up um they come up into this okay in this amazing set with all these machines uh, built by a guy named kenneth Strickfaden. all the little the things that spin around and the, the lightnings and the tesla coils and stuff the guy built all those things himself um he didn't technically i don't think work for universal because he got he because he kept the machines after the films So I think he kind of was an independent contractor to these films, and he was just the guy that built all this crazy machinery that now is just what we associate with mad science, right? I mean, every mad scientist needs a Tesla coil and needs a thing and needs, you know. Oh, it's wonderful. And again, someone else uncredited on this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but who, whose machines, again, would show up in, in further universal films and then also in Young Frankenstein. Uh, yeah. Mel Brooks found out this guy was still alive. All his stuff was still in his garage and he went and just pulled it all out. So a lot of those machines in Young Frankenstein are the same machines as in as in. Frankenstein, which just you know, it, Young Frankenstein is just a beautiful tribute to this film, I, and 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 some of its sequels too. It it plays off of Bride and Son of Frankenstein. Yeah, so we see you know th- this beautiful setting. The the three visitors are are seated down, and Henry sort of explains to them a little bit about what they're about to see. Yeah, he almost
0: challenges Waldman. He's yeah. respectful enough. It says, you know, Doctor Waldman, I learned an awful lot of from you at university, and they have talked about you know the ultraviolet ray, and he basically said, you know, you were not you were wrong about some things. I've gone even a step further and have now discovered this ray of life. And the, Waldman the, the, the and original Ray that, that created the original Ray, is. right. And Waldman's like, well, let's, you know, where's your proof? And he's like, well, you're going to, you know, you're going to have your proof in just, you know, very short amount of time. And mm-hmm. he kind of goes on to explain that he created this body. It wasn't body isn't dead. It's never lived that this is yeah. something he's cr- very, very proud created with his own hands. You know, this isn't mm-hmm. a body he dug up. This is something that he stitched together. And he goes on to explain, you know, from the gallows and, you know, digging up gravesites. very mm-hmm.
1: dark yeah yeah he he, he confesses to, to what he's done there's a certain contempt for dr waldman that he has too it's it's interesting like almost a, a competition or or it's almost like he henry's disappointed in his old professor for what he sees as waldman's like lack of vision
0: absolutely um, i was gonna say narrow-mindedness lack of vision yeah i think yeah. he, he sees a lot of He probably it's you know would have loved to have you
1: know partnered up with waldman um, yeah yeah. He, yeah he respects him but i think he thinks he's a uh, frankly a bit of a coward for not being brave enough to push through and we have that more of that in this later conversation that comes up in, in a little while in the right. film he calls um, him poor, poor old Waldman.
0: yeah so yeah
1: time has passed you Waldman. yeah exactly he, and he's he's the next step in, logically in, in in scientific discovery evolution um, yeah so we have this amazing scene now where the the creature is brought to life it's cinematically you know the way the camera works the the, the set the sound the, you know, the lightning, everything, the acting, the performances, the direction where this bed, uh, you know, like table that the monster's on is lifted up, up, up above, out of, outside almost of the the top of the tower to be exposed to the lightning. So you have the scene where the, the table, the monster's on is lifted up uh, to the top of the tower, where it's going to be exposed to, to the lightning and to the rays and whatever apparatus that, you know, Frankenstein has, has put together to, in order to bring it to life. Everyone watches it's, you know, that brings everyone's throwing switches and, and, tuning dials and stuff and pretty soon that it comes back down very slowly and rests the monster still under uh we should talk about out you know we haven't even seen Karloff yet we're 20 some minutes into the film and we have not seen the monster at all uh he's laying on the table he's bandaged up like a mummy and under sheets and whatnot and we've only seen like you know an exposed hand at this point and sort of the top of the flat top
0: Face totally covered, just, yeah, just the the hand sticking out. And apparently that was actually Kalaf. I did was trying to do a little bit of research. Was it a dummy? Was it just a a, a stand-in? But that was actually Kalaf, and there was a great quote of him explaining, you know, as they're rising, bringing that table up, Mm -hmm. um, that he could actually see some of the the guys that work for Strickfadden at the top with these rods creating all these lightning bolts and he said he was oh, so nervous about them dropping you know a rod because it would have obviously landed on him or god forbid his face so one, that was one actually withy, right yeah that was actually call off on the table
1: It's actually call off on the table which is it's funny because it's such a wide shot you feel like you could get away with it but you have the guy so so why not do it yeah and it's a neat idea uh that y- you see the thing whale does is you slowly see more and more and more of the monster as the film goes on even even in the next few scenes we he 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 teases it out quite a bit whereas in you know in Dracula Lugosi, if we go to the, the crypt underneath castle Dracula and Lugosi stands up and you have there's there's Dracula right whale plays it a little more cunningly he makes it makes us wait just a little bit anyway so so the table comes back down uh there's a silent moment everyone you know is watching on and stuff and then the hand raises and Henry knows that he's succeeded, and of course, the famous, uh, the
0: one of the most famous, well-known lines in all of cinema. You know, it's alive, it's alive, it's it's alive, alive," and just goes absolutely frantic. And as you know, at this time, and you know, some blasphemous things being said, and of course, that famous cut line. Now now I know
1: what it feels like to be God, um, right. which was which was cut in some versions. And then in uh, later versions, they just dubbed over, they kind of dropped the volume and they dubbed over a big thunderclap over that. So I remember even in like the VHS era renting this movie. And I knew about that line from reading in Famous Monsters or, or something. I knew all about the line and how it had been dubbed over. And, and if you listened, you could still hear it. It was pretty low. And then those big, ugly sun, thunderclap over it, they... Managed to rediscover the audio when they were restoring the film for DVD, and 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 when the uh, I think when the the legacy collections, the the first uh, versions of DVD were put out, it was restored back in there. So we now we, we we have the line intact, right, with the
0: DVD. So it's you know obviously this famous line, and then the Maria's um, seen by the lake. But yeah, they had mentioned that you know back when they used to do audio recording in the 30s, it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't part of the actual film itself. It was recorded on a record. So right. even if the film, the film
1: itself. The film itself was manipulated. They still had that audio record. Yeah, and they still and they 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 found it in it's. It was like in Carl Lemley Jr.'s basement or something. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Like yeah. they, it's. It was one of those things. They 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 did some detective work and did finally you know track it down, which is lucky. Uh, uh, it's like a detective, you know, thing putting together some of these old films when they've been mangled or or edited or manipulated. So ba- right on the heels of that line, uh, Henry sort of collapses. He kind of just the the stress and the intensity of of what he's been doing finally catch up to him, and now he's succeeded. You know, his knees buckle, and he kind of he kind of goes down. Um, you know, Colin Clive was he struggled with alcoholism his entire life, and it led to an early, early death for him. Unfortunately, he he sort of had a breakout in *Journey's End*, which had been directed by Whale, which was about you know World War One, where which, which which I don't think I don't know about Clive, but Whale had fought in World War One in the trenches. But you get that what that informs the character. Uh, uh, Colin Clive brings this manic energy to the character, but he also brings this this the understanding of an obsession. Like he gets that this work that Henry is doing is is his addiction, and he can't quit it, no matter what. And, and we see that in the the next film, and obviously, it stays with him, and and it's tearing, it's killing him. I'm obviously, like you can see, he's drawn and pale, and nervous, and, and and antsy, and everything It's having a negative effect on his love life, obviously, on his you, know, his you know his professional life. He had to leave the college and stuff, but he won't give it up. He can't give it up, and and that's something Clive brings to this role that a, a, a less how do I want to say this? Uh, maybe a more conventionally glamorous male lead actor in this role might not have been able to impart to it. And, and so I think we're just lucky that Whale had worked with Clive and, and wanted to bring him into this project.
0: Yeah. I mean, you could see the beauty in this, in the pain, like you said, I mean, it would have taken quite an actor to replicate this role, but you know, again, he was just such a tragic figure. And yeah. I mean, you hear he's, I mean, people, I think actually um, May Clark you know, said he was one of the nicest man I'd ever met. And then from the same accounts, he was like, you know, this Jekyll and Hyde that almost Mm -hmm. similar to like Lon Chaney Jr. was, you know, once that, you know, that alcohol hit and, you know, the cravings hit, he became just a different person, very nasty and short. He was right of mind. He it just sounded like Clive was just a very gentle, sweet, sweet man, but Mm -hmm. obviously very, you know, had some, you know, real problems. And it's just, it's so sad, but, you know, like you said, Whale was able to really draw that, draw that out of Clive and just what a perfect choice for Henry Frankenstein.
1: I, I think so. As, as the, you know, the one part of the two part mix that, that every Frankenstein movie has to, you know, have uh, between the, the maker and the monster following Henry's kind of breakdown. We go back to uh, castle Frankenstein, uh, Victor and, and Elizabeth have gone to, to talk with Henry's dad, the Baron played by Frederick Carr in a scene that again, <laughs> it's like, it's sort of like the forward momentum of the scene kind of stops again. And then we have this—I I guess you call it—a lighter bit, uh, a little bit of comedy relief in in uh, in this crusty old Baron character, right, played play by this veteran actor.
0: Right. And I had read that, you know, whale wanted the scene just to kind of give people a breather between yeah. and you can yeah. kind of see it. You know, it's kind of you need a little bit of a lull between, you know, the monster coming to life and then the next scene, which will be the actual monster collar walking yeah. in, you know, showing up yeah. with the dog. Again,
1: so. it's whale, it's whale like dragging it out just a little bit more, yeah. just making you wait just, a little bit. It's really get a little
0: bit of a get a little bit of a breather. But yeah, Baron Frankenstein is just so freaking grumpy. And <laughs> um, you know, I want my son home. He's with you know you guys are lying to me. He does another woman and the yeah. whole thing and um you know yeah. victor and elizabeth are being very respectful but i just you know just baron you know just you
1: know let henry do his thing he'll be home soon and right. baron is not hearing of it so yeah and, and actually the, bur- the burgomaster shows up and he doesn't like the burgomaster and something you get the feeling frederick carr was at a point in his career where he didn't exactly memorize lines like he got the gist of something and then he kind of just went yeah right a little extemporaneously and and all the other actors are trying to sort of work off of his time right a little
0: bit you could see it's funny yeah may clark there's a scene actually coming right up where they're at the watchtower and they're trying to get in the baron has the cane and he's like scraping it down the door you watch may clark and you can yeah. see her grinning like she must have been like this guy yeah. is just out to lunch yeah, yeah
1: he's, he's just total, the total character turn loose and breaking the set and stuff right. and, and i've worked with i've worked with veteran actors like that where they they get to the point where they're just like look, look i'm going to attack this thing the way i do it and everyone else can just work around what i'm going for and and it's it is fun he's he's entertaining i guess he's got his little fez is. and everything and great thing. um so before we remember that that I huge goiter he's got behind his ear which is really horrible <laughs> i know like,
0: Yeah, so before we leave the scene, actually, so something I picked up just as I'm watching the movie for this podcast Mm -hmm. something that um, Baron mentions is Henry's lab in a windmill. So obviously, as we know, um, Henry's lab is in the watchtower. Yeah, going back actually in Flory's. So again, the first direct of Flory's screenplay. Henry's lab was actually in a windmill. So in you a windmill. have to wonder if the lines just hadn't been changed.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or- they hadn't
0: fixed it. And and, yeah. and that
1: and if that's the one line that, that Frederick Kirk gets gets right or That's <laughs> the one that he got right.
0: But yeah, if you yeah. listen to him, it's you know, we get a Henry's lab in that broken down windmill. It's not, you know, watchtower He specifically says windmill and that's something out of Flurry. I screen.
1: had always been interested in that. That's funny. Yeah. All right, so we are back in in the Watchtower now, the actual Watchtower. Uh, Henry and Doctor Baldwin are sort of having a conversation at the table in within the you know the the monster making room, and this is the scene where Baldwin uh, reveals to him that a a perfectly good brain was not stolen from the thing, as as Henry thinks uh, a criminal brain was stolen. Waldman right from the beginning of the scene. You
0: know, he's never calls. I mean, I'll just call it the creation of the call off. Mm-hmm. You know, him or it or whatever. It's the cre- Just the, the words he uses: creature and yeah. fiend. And so you yeah. have to wonder. So it sounds like there's been about two days that have passed since the month, or you know, the creature came to life until right. this point. Now that Henry and Waldman is sitting at this table, so you have to wonder what has been going on at this watchtower for him to be, you know, your creature, your fiend. He's going to yeah. destroy
1: you. Does Waldman dislike the creature just based on the the method of its creation, or does has he sensed something in it? That, that leads him to this famous line where he said, you've created a monster and it will destroy you. This but, very prophetic, you know, he's, he's kind of right. You almost have to wonder, is Waldman a little bit pissed or jealous? There, there's definitely like a, there's a tension between these two men. And I think each of them sees the other one has, has, has failed one way or the other. I, I, again, again, I think Henry thinks Waldman hasn't been brave enough with science. And I think Waldman thinks Henry has been irresponsible with science. Uh, so it's, it's two different ideologies, I think, you know, connecting. I mean, I think Waldman's right.
0: I think you know, probably ninety five percent of him is you know on Henry's side and wants to help him. But I'm telling you, there's a five percent
1: of Waldman I like the son of a bitch. He got he he did it. Yeah, he did it. Yeah, yeah. He he sort of refuses to give Henry the credit he he does deserve. I mean, Henry has accomplished something that no one else has been able to do. Uh, Waldman seems obsessed with with lecturing him still, and I guess right. it's the the teacher student zeitgeist or whatever absolutely. Um, but 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 he's he's also he's 95 as we said he's 95 percent right he 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 can disagree with the methods that, that the monster was created by but he understands that that in the doing of the thing um frankenstein has crossed the line and 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 it's going to have consequences which you know again goes to the overarching theme of of both the book and the films we then go to you know frankenstein says up you no know, now i've kept him in the dark for days or something, which seems not nice. Probably a couple of um, days, right? Yeah, now I I'll bring it's... him into the light, right? <laughs> and this goes into a thing we'll, we'll get into later about... about. The, the doctor and everything. So, so now we have finally the scene where we see Karloff in the makeup, full full blown for the first time, and one of the most iconic scenes in film history, obviously mm-hmm. in any film history, not just horror film history. And 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 again, Whale stages it very interestingly. He starts, you know, the door opens and Karloff is facing the opposite direction, and what right. all we see is sort of the silhouette of this huge hulking uh, creature. You know, they padded up Karloff's shoulders of his jacket. Again, he's wearing uh, concrete pavers boots, which have like a huge thick sole, right, uh, and they. Cut the sleeves of his of his jacket shorter, and it it has the effect of making his arms look longer. Uh, Again, Karloff only a five foot eleven man, and it's and it's just the the styling and the techniques and, and makeup and and wardrobe that gives him this incredibly you know enormous uh appearance so yeah we start on the bat his back and he slowly turns and we, we we see him in close-up turning and we see him full bodied, and we see another close-up of his face and we're revealed this this jack pierce makeup uh for the first time this masterpiece that that again in my opinion has never been equal uh, the starting with what he worked with he doesn't transform karloff's facial features too much he, he gives him heavier eyelids and he draws out again. Karloff takes out his his, his bridge, so his, his right cheek caves in. And then there's the iconic, obviously flat top, you know, with the lank hair and stuff, and and paint. But it's still Karloff. It's still it's, as opposed to the Wolfman, say, or something. It's it's still very much Karloff's face, and he's able to act and emote and do all the things he needs to do to to make you you know uh, appreciate this character. And yet there's this uncanniness to it that's just it's 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 just this perfect amalgam. And and it it, it, it always baffles me, like how how could anyone even get close to what they achieved in this moment
0: never mind just the makeup that you know pierce had to use but exactly to your point i mean there isn't i don't say there's a lot of me- not a lot of makeup on him but truly it's just it's the flat head, it's the the eyes yeah but it's all call offs mouth i mean the way he's able to you, emote the mm-hmm. way he's you know be able to act it really makes it yeah. so special versus some other characters like i mean you mentioned wolfman or just, you know folks are actors with full facial appliances yeah. this isn't this yeah. um you know obviously he had
1: the Flat head, and I mean, he just looks grotesquely inhuman. Yeah, even later on, like so, like the mummy, where, right. where they covered his face in the stipple stuff that did like like shriveled it and stuff. I think it, it it kept him from being able to to move as much. It, you know, it made him into this like you know ossified kind of character. Yeah, uh, he still has all his he's still able to use his whole toolkit of of performance here, and it's really impressive. Although it's it's a it was a long arduous makeup process for him. It was hours and hours and hours in a chair. The suit weighed a ton. It was uncomfortable. He had braces on his legs, so he couldn't bend his knees too well or his ankles or whatever. So, so really, an uncomfortable experience under the hot lights and in, in in the summer outside of of California.
0: Get some of the stats here. I couldn't believe it. So, yeah, the costume weighed forty eight pounds. Mm-hmm. Each boot weighed thirteen pounds. And again, Kaloff yeah, yeah. was not a huge man. So imagine yeah. walking around in you know sixty plus this costume in the dead of summer in California.
1: Made I mean, out of wool, yeah not, oh. not incredibly robustly strong man either. I mean, there's the photos of him sitting there, you know, drinking the cup of tea with the shirt off, right. In in the full Frank side face makeup. And he's a, he's a scrawny guy. Again, he'd been a starving actor for a while. So I had read, that some, plays in later when he, when he, he hurts himself in the process of the film, but yeah. Yeah. And I had read somewhere else too, that he ended up losing
0: 20 pounds during the filming of this because i just, Oh yeah. Because of the cost. Sweat, like, you sweat you it know, off, like, just, yeah. probably just yeah. sweat it all off.
1: But uh, so so he comes in. Uh, Henry's trying to talk to him. He's trying to give him simple actions. He has him sit, and then he sits in this great chair, and the. The, the shutters are are opened above him and he does he sees this light for the first time and he's got this beatific scene mary clark called it beatific where he he, he reaches up and he can't he he tries to grab the light he can't he can't understand what it is he can not you know he's he's a baby right and this is when
0: you go into just some of the acting of of Kala, just the body acting yeah. the hands i mean especially when he sits down and he's unable to to grasp the light and henry you know closes the shutters and he's back in darkness again and he's so
1: sad it, it went away yeah, he, right he, he has so few Things he can do, he can't talk, and he can't. So many of the actors' you know toolkit that he does not have access to because of the makeup and because of the the character. Um, but what he does with what he has is 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 so impressive, and it's why I mean I'm I'm not going to ditch like Glenn Strange or 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 Lugosi or or Lon Chaney Jr. who who would play later iterations of the of the monster, but I don't think anyone ever. Reach this level of pathos that 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 Karloff brings to it. It's why it was his character, obviously. Not even close. I mean,
0: you could, this this character, this this Frankenstein monster, died, in my opinion, died at the end of Bride. Like you never ever saw just the sentimental, deep, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The 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 sun. Again. Yeah, you have a you have a flash or a moment or two, but but this is mm. and and he's. You know, you and you can see in Bride of Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein, uh, Karloff changes because after the success of this film, he's able to eat better and he's able to, like, you know, <laughs> have better nutrition. And his face gets much less skeletal. His face, and he also ages. Karloff is 44 at this point when he does this role. So, mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's our age. And and I don't know about you, Scott, but, like, like, you know, things start, like, you wake up and you don't just jump out of bed anymore. I mean, there's... Yeah, never mind putting on a seventy-five pound right, right, you know, costume. With yeah, boots yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, it's 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 hard on him, and he, you know, and I'll, I'll just go forward and later, you know, at the end, he's forced to carry Victor or Henry up up a bunch of stairs into the windmill, and Whale made him do it multiple multiple times, and Karloff severely damaged his spine in doing that, and had a for the rest of his life had a lifetime of spinal problems. This this film cost him dearly in in the physical sense for the rest of his life even while it gave him you know success and and, and wealth and and popularity uh it took a to- it took a permanent toll on him as well so and and then you know right on the heels of of this you know breakthrough moment where he sees the light for the first time of course fritz shows up with the torch like mm-hmm. like master he's escaped <laughs> and and fritz uh there's definitely something wrong with fritz besides the hunchback there, there's something emotionally or <laughs> mentally wrong with him because he he just there's a weird hatred of of the creature in him, uh, of this thing that he's helped The Frankenstein create now he seems to delight in torturing it with fire.
0: I feel like he yeah I mean I feel like he's probably been tormented by Henry for so long and it's probably just been the two of them locked up right in this watchtower and I mean you can just see in the in the 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 brief scenes between Henry and Fritz you know Henry is very short with them and almost mean to him and pushes them out of the way yeah yeah now that now that Fritz has this thing that now
1: he can torment or be master of you know that's a good. Yeah, that's a good that's a good perspective. I, I think I think there's something there and something like that because he does. And the the creature, in in sort of self defense, rises up and there's there's a scuffle uh, with between between the creature and then uh, uh, Fritz and Henry and and Doctor Waldman, in, in which the the creature is sort of subdued finally by all three of them. But it does show it, it does a good job of showing right away like the creature's prodigious strength. It takes three grown men to well well two and a half grown men to <laughs> To, right. uh,
0: to wrestle him to the ground no it's nice waldman comes in the back and gives him like a a, a spock like a star trek spock chop in the back of the yeah, neck yeah. and finally that was a pretty nice little move from waldman yeah i'm um, expert feeling. but yeah drops the monster and henry says you know get some ropes that's we have to tie him up and right. they bring him down into that i don't know dungeon i guess we
1: yeah have, yeah whatever there, it is room. this room in the back which is really amazing with this window that's small and like it's like kind of a forced perspective thing oh it's um, beautiful there's great shots, still shots of of Karloff as the monster, you know, crouched in that window. That yes, really, yes. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a really beautifully designed set, and and so he's chained down there. Fritz occasionally goes and tries to scare him and stuff. And this is this is what my main take from from the the story, like the if 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 I wanted to call it like a morality tale. My problem isn't ever that. <clears throat> Is that the Frankenstein has betrayed God by creating this thing that he's stolen the secret of creation and stuff? My main issue is is Frankenstein is actually abusive to his progeny. This is his child he's created, and he gives up on it instantly and locks it away and tries to forget about it. He's he's not responsible. He's not he's not a good parent. And I think everything that comes afterwards is is based on his failure to to take responsibility for the thing he's he's
0: brought into the world hundred percent. He was irresponsible when they said, you know, Frankenstein was the monster. Frankenstein, Dr. Right. Frankenstein truly is the monster he created being. And, yeah. you know, with that, he didn't have any. He's, um, he's the
1: abusive parent. Yeah, exactly. Truly. Or the negligent parent,
0: which, whichever is worse. Right. So the monster is locked up in the dungeon room and we see Fritz enter. Or we assume Fritz is in there with, you know, a torch tormenting the monster. So there's a scene from, we'll call it, I like what you said, Jim, the monster making room up in the kind of the top level yeah. of the watchtower. And Henry and Waldman here, Fritz screaming, and right. um, he'd get down to the dungeon, open up the door, and they see Fritz hanging, and the monster yeah. had you know. Well, Fritz, Fritz
1: has a, a a torch and a whip, and he's <laughs> he's I mean, you know, he's literally and, just just abusing the poor creature. Yeah. And you have these amazing uh, point of view shots of him shoving the flame right into the lens of the camera, and 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 poor you know the creature like curling up in the corner as far back as he he can get away from the flame. Got that's right Jim no, I was gonna say sorry to interrupt you, but that's what that was a scene, and when
0: I saw it first on d v d it occurred to me so that was a scene that was actually cut from the original film because of just the graphic nature that's so they,
1: horrific. It really yeah,
0: is. yeah, the census thought it was just a little bit too over the top to see the yeah. flames so close to the monster yeah right.
1: and here's here's the the probably I guess our first reason why why we had this you know fire bad kind of like. Mm-hmm. uh aspect with the you know the, the Frankenstein monster is legendarily like the one thing he's afraid of is fire right and you, you get you get the feeling because he was traumatized by it right on. exactly yeah um
0: so they find Fritz hanging and actually kind of a, a cool little um interesting uh, note here so that's actually the the, the body of Fritz hangs actually the same dummy they used in that opening scene in the graveyard if you remember yes. Fritz climbing up and cutting that down I thought that was kind of cool
1: yeah. They're, you know, they're, they're cost-effective though. <laughs> they, you know, dummies, dummy's not, you know, it's a weighted dummy and everything. It's gotta be somewhat articulated and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, apparently I read that they use it again as the, one of the bodies in, in house or, or house of Dracula or house of Frankenstein too. that, that, that dummy shows up a few times. I oh, think. wow. It was, it was typecast. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Always the body. <laughs> um, Yeah. Fritz, Fritz is hung, Baldwin and, and Henry run down and they see it and, you know, the monster's there and they're like, Oh, you know, and he charges the door. And this is my one of my scariest scenes, I th- I think, is there they've got the door closed and Carlos' arm and his, his face is just pressed against the, mm. you know, in the crack of the door and he's trying to get out and they're like, no, 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 get away, get right. away, you know? Yeah, they finally close the door and you can just hear the pounding and just,
0: I mean, mm-hmm. it, just the power of this thing, just banging on the door and screaming right. and
1: yelling, you know, just that monster growl that we're so familiar with. Yeah, that unstoppable force. Yeah. Um, and- uh They finally get him locked back in there Henry doesn't know what to do. Waldman kind of takes charge and says, go, go get, you know, a, a, I don't know what he says, an injection or a needle or something or, or something. Yeah, they want to get um, like a tranquilizer almost. A tranquilizer. Yeah, Put yeah. to dope yeah. up. Yep. Henry runs up, comes back down. Uh, you know, here it is, half grain solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that they're going to Open the door. They hatch the plan that you know they're gonna open the door, Henry's gonna lead the guy out, and while the, the creature's focused on him, Faldman's gonna jump up and, and jab him in the back. Right. Um which they do. There's some uh, somewhat of a scuffle after that. And then you have this great moment where where the monster suddenly just goes a little dopey and he's kind of looking around. You can imagine he's seeing he's seeing like, you know, birds and butterflies, you know, in funny colors and stuff, and then he, you know, he he goes down uh pretty hard.
0: Yeah. I mean he's got his his arms wrapped around Henry's neck, I and mean, at this yeah. point though he'd already Knocked, yeah. you know Waldman down he's right you know, right am I unconscious right. and you know choking out Henry and you've got to imagine you know if it was another 10 12 seconds Henry might have been dead but yeah, yeah the dead. monster succumbs to the tranquilizer he finally goes down Henry gets up checks on Waldman Waldman's okay and then there's another knocking on the door and it's Victor basically giving them a heads up that the Baron and Elizabeth are right down the street and
1: your, your dad's coming. Yeah. Quick. Your dad's coming. Clean up the house. Um. Yeah, right. Oh, man. Hide the body. <laughs> Hide the body.
0: Um, yeah. So, flames so they do. They, out. so they <laughs> drag
1: the monster into back into that, that dungeon room and close the door uh, just in time to answer the vault. And, and Henry has to run up because he's got blood on him. Um, Henry has to run up and, and clean himself up real quick. So his dad, dad doesn't see him, which I'm not sure why his dad can't see in his blood, but I, I get it baldman opens the door and of course you know here we have frederick carr come in doing his, what he does again like no. oh what's that torch He's trying to burn down the place <laughs> <laughs> who's this yeah like, say what are
0: you doing ah. yeah
1: right now, yeah, right i, I, I lapped into edward g roms in there um so good. you know and and <clears throat> baldman introduces himself they're, they're a little bit they go upstairs to go check on henry as soon as they open the door henry looks up and collapses
0: just succumbs to four, you know, four or five months of just everything he's been doing. Probably right, sleepless right. nights, the yes. stress.
1: Not eating. I mean, there's right, a
0: couple so of that. scenes before this. Just you know, Fritz tormenting the monster. You can just see you know, everything is just building up. Henry is not well, and yeah, yeah, Elizabeth comes, opens up the door, and as Henry tries to walk towards her, collapses. I mean, not unconscious, but almost in like this fevered state.
1: Right, 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 um, and and, so, and you know, and and the, and the 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 Baron, to his credit, kind of takes over and says, you know, go get me a brandy or something. Get <laughs> because right. what you when people collapse back then, that's what you did. You poured alcohol every, down there. Every
0: movie, I mean, Universal Hammer, just give him a glass
1: of brandy and everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. I'm not, not really sure that's medically uh, an appropriate thing to do to someone who's <laughs> suffering from it, you know, you know, nervous disposition or something. But that's okay. It did uh, work. But, and, and here you have sort of the end of the first half of the film, and you get Henry's issue where you know this thing that he's spent so long tr- striving for that he thinks is going to change the world has, has turned into a nightmare it's every all of his hopes have been dashed and and he's he's he has to just sort of chuck it all and start over and and it brings about this this physical uh breakdown
0: it would have been nice to see a little bit more of an arc in henry's character and we're not at the end of the movie yet but no. he yeah. to me never ever owns responsibility of his own failures and well,
1: you just, right well this mo- is then this is where you know we go into the second half of the film and and you know the next time we see Henry he's he's just back to his posh lifestyle he's sitting outside having a little picnic with Elizabeth and he's drinking tea and, and or Sherry or whatever and he's you know he's he's recuperating yes and and great his solution to the problem is is just to pretend it didn't happen and and that's a shame for his his character because as much as you want to like him again it's this thing where he he's not taking responsibility for his actions.
0: He was let off very easily and Valdman, but you know, pride, you know, soon after Henry collapsed, and the Baron said, you know, Henry, we're gonna bring you home. And Valdman says gonna basically stay and yeah. dissect them. You know, what would you do with any savage
1: animal? You you kill it. you you know yeah. you yeah. put it out so of its misery. He's, he's gonna and he's gonna vivisect it and and yeah. right. And I think because I think Waldman wants to learn from Henry's mistakes. I think Waldman's caught a little bit of the the fever here. I think Um, so. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. This I would love to,
0: yeah. I mean, if this was true true life, like you get him on um, you know, some truth serum. There's I think he's a very deep character, this Dr. Ballman. We're not we're only seeing the surface. And we I think he's too soon, but yeah. I think he's almost getting that some of that addiction too, like, oh, you know, who's gonna who's gonna take care of the monster? I will. I don't you know, I'll just I'll call in sick to uh for the next month.
1: Yeah, or 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 is he thinking like, well, now you know, I can learn from this and I can help myself and my own, you know. Right science and, and stuff or maybe i can help everybody i don't know his 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 it might be a more altruistic idea uh but he's going to do what needs to be done the dirty work and stuff and he and he's the guy who can do that so while henry's recuperating faultman and, and the creature are alone together and he's going to you know he picks up the scalpel he's got the creature on the table and he's going to i'm not sure how er, they got the creature on the table but <laughs> if he's all alone but uh he's going to he's first i guess firstly he's going to kill the creature somehow and then and then you know start the the necropsy but of course, as we all know, the creature's not dead and the hand slowly raises up and raises up behind Waldman and grabs him from behind and, you know.
0: Right. There's a quick scene of, yeah, I was going to say, there's a quick scene of Waldman taking some notes and actually pausing just to see what he was writing. Right. So his note was, so increased resistance to the, the trank that he's been giving him. So he's oh, okay, been, you, know, yeah. you know, quote unquote, more frequent injections. Right. Because he's becoming immune to to the trank, mm-hmm. which obviously there's another scene of Waldman's kind of, I know, almost listening for a heartbeat or something, but leaving his neck vulnerable. And as Jim yeah. said, the, the hand comes up of the of the creature and chokes him out extremely quickly. Yeah,
1: yeah. And and so Volman's done. And the creature uh gets from the table. He comes down the stairs. He's looking around. He looks into the room where he was tormented by by Fritz, and is like, "No, nah, I'm not going to <laughs> <laughs> I love the shaking hands, like your jazz hands. He's like, "Yeah." <laughs> um, and and we see him. He gets to the door, and he he, he doesn't know how to open a door, and he kind of works at it for a second, and it's it sort. Sort of ends up coming loose and opening on its own. And he's like, oh, here we go. And he's, and here we have it. The, 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 the monster is loose in the countryside.
0: Yeah, it's funny. He kind of bumps into the door and the door just kind of bounces yeah. open. And yeah, off he, off he go <laughs> yeah. Off he goes. And the next scene is um, Henry and Elizabeth. Like you said, they've forgotten all about life in the Watchtower. So Henry and Elizabeth, it's their wedding day. And the village is a buzz, and the house is a buzz, and you know the villagers are drinking and dancing. And the Baron
1: doesn't want the servants to have the good stuff, and there's, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's still grumpy, um, but yeah. he has a welcome, he has a welcome upbeat, uh, you know, flavor in in the mix of, of this film and stuff. As as much as he drives me a little crazy, I do. I mean, I think he serves a very good purpose.
0: Yeah, God bless him. Man. It's not like he passed away shortly after this film. So yeah, you know, like
1: two years after this or something, and he dies and stuff. So yeah, he, had, he
0: might have been, lo- he, lo- he might not have been feeling well and. A little bit crappy, yeah. but yeah, yeah, you know, give this, give the servants the cheap stuff. They wouldn't appreciate this. Right.
1: It's, good stuff's wasted on them. <laughs> um, it's funny. Uh, I'm not sure if this is so. So we do see the town of Goldstadt now, and and, it, and it, there's a whole celebration going on because it is a big wedding day, the Baron's son. I'm not sure if this is the first appearance we have of of the the European town on the Universal backlot as as it as it then appears in all the subsequent Universal films and stuff. I, I'm sure I'm sure that setting was there, and I'm sure another another iterations and stuff. But the way it the way it's made into this like Germanic looking kind of thing, this is as far as the Universal canon goes. This is the first time I think we've we've seen it in its full glory because there's a big it pan a big dolly shot tracking through the town and up the cobblestones and around the corner and stuff it's a it was a big backlot set and and unfortunately it doesn't exist anymore it it burned down i believe in the 60s but this is the same part of the backlot in universal that they used for the Wolfman and they used for, you know, you know, dozens of other of these films, also Westerns and other type films as well. Universal used it, you know, exhaustively. Yeah. So, so we have this great celebration and stuff. Now we, we see these two new characters. We see uh, Ludwig, who's a farmer uh, and he lives by, by a, a big lake, uh, probably somewhere outside of Goldstadt uh, and his daughter, Maria Ludwig is going into town. Um, we don't know if he's, um, if he's going in to help celebrate or pay his respects to the, to the Baron because uh, he takes his, his, some of the tools with. Them, so i'm not sure he leaves his, his young daughter maria uh and her cat to to stay uh behind for a little while um i will note that now that um, you know you're seeing it on blu-ray uh in the close shots of the cat that cat did not want to be in frankenstein um it does <laughs> not look they, little maria is holding this little uh you know animal that that i don't think was ready to uh to be a movie star they got through that scene it's, it's it looks like it's his thing
0: yeah, he he could I think the cat you could have used some of uh Baldman's Trank, maybe Baldman's
1: Trank just a little bit to chill yeah. it out. Uh this was this uh area, uh, this location was filmed up in Malibu, which is like an hour north from from Hollywood uh back then. Now it's even probably more with traffic. And they filmed it by this big lake. The story is that um and this is an off-repeated story, so it's probably not new to a lot of our listeners, but that uh there was a lot of worry on the production's part that that the young girl playing Maria, which Scott help me out with her name. Marilyn Harris. Marilyn Harris was going to be terrified upon seeing uh, Karloff in, in the makeup. But apparently, as soon they were all getting ready to get in the cars to drive up to the location to shoot for the day, apparently, as soon as she sees Karloff uh, in the makeup, she runs up and takes his hand and asks if she can ride with him, uh, which is a sweet story. Well, especially yes. where,
0: especially where so many folks around the studio had been, you know, so scared of seeing Karloff walking. Yeah. From yeah. me. people. he couldn't
1: take ate lunches ate in the cafeteria. They, they he had to eat separately. And, yeah, because yeah. of uh, uh the, he he just eat, he unnerved people's appetites. Apparently, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And it's, it's funny little... looking back, and you know, the Frankenstein monster has become such a, a commonplace image in our pop culture. And there's cartoons of him, and Scooby Doo meets him, and there's Pez dispensers and everything. You know, he's he's literally a pop culture icon. The bolts and the green and the flat top and everything. It's funny to think back to a time where that image was was horrific to an average person uh, who, who didn't have the context uh, uh, of, 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 of having experience or growing up. You know, you and I grew up knowing what the, my whole thing about the, Fra- Frankenstein is a story that everybody knows without even having to read it. it it's, 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 it's become a pop culture myth. I, you know, you can talk to the average person, they know the story of Frankenstein, even if they've never read the book, and even if like, they possibly have never seen the film, it is that uh, pervasive in our culture. It, it's it's hard to go back to a time and imagine a time when, when it wasn't. You just walk up to anybody in the street, you say Frankenstein, the first thing they're going to say is, oh,
0: the green skin, the flathead, yeah. the bolts. Yeah. But it's, you know, why this is such a special character in movies, it, it's so much deeper than that. That you know, people can relate to the monster as this tragic mm-hmm. um, character. This you know thing that you know was created not not on its own, and,
1: right, and you right. know in a
0: world that didn't belong to him, in a world that he did not ask to be a part of. Yeah, was you know pushed to the side, and it's it's extremely sad. I know you know everyone can had feelings like that of being feeling displaced and not feeling like they belong.
1: Yeah. The, and you know, and 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 he's such an innocent character, and and I think that's why he appeals so much to children too. Is is they see right. themselves in, in in the in the creature in this in this thing that doesn't. And I think he appeals to adolescents who are uh, don't feel like their 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 bodies are changing. They don't understand what's going on. So I, I think everyone can identify with the creature in their on their own context. And I think that's what has made the creature and the story uh, so pervasive. Again, Absolutely, in, in just innocent
0: and clumsy and. Yeah, I mean, and, so many and, reasons
1: to. And who hasn't thrown a little girl into a lake too? So you know, again, there's that that we can all understand too. <laughs> I I do that probably every summer. So. <laughs> right. Luckily they uh, luckily they float and they they stay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And- um, you you do. You have this this wonderful little scene where where little uh, the, the monster comes out of the the, the reeds and shows up and, and maria's there and instead of being afraid of him because she's so innocent she just takes his hand and wants to play with him and wants to play with these little daisies she's got and she's throwing in the in the lake and stuff and this is another scene that unfortunately it's hard to separate from the scene in young frankenstein where the little girl's like is there anything else we can throw in and, and peter bowl just looks at the camera um I, they, I know we're concentrating on on a
0: universal, but man, oh man, I would love to get young Frankenstein on the uh, the docket. Yeah, some, we, we probably point. should because once, once
1: we're done with the universal, man, yeah, oh, it, it's a it's a great postscript to this entire. It's a perfect. love letter to all of these these. It um, really is these films. Yeah. But this is a a running theme in the Frankenstein stories, where with say Maria, the little girl, uh, the old blind man, and Bride of Frankenstein. The idea that the the fear of the monster comes from the people's an adult person's like bias, and say a child or a blind person doesn't have that that implicit bias um, and can accept it as a just an unusual looking character and isn't immediately afraid of something because they don't understand or they don't like how it looks. They look
0: different. They look different than me, so I'm going to hate them or they exactly, which is which is is
1: really the, the. Parable of the human nature that that, that the story you know act, exactly. orbits around, but but he does so so unknowing what he's doing because he doesn't understand what life and death is. He doesn't understand anything. The monster picks Marie up and throws her in the water after the things, and then is terrified when she's when she drowns. He's he's panicked and he's aggrieved. It's you know he, there's not an evil intent there. It's it's an accident com- that comes out of ignorance and innocence on the monster's part, and he's horrified and and he runs away. It's 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 a real traumatic experience. It's, for it him it's, too. it's
0: so sad. I mean, yeah, I mean, he and this girl are throwing little flower heads into the water and the flowers float. And mm-hmm. in the, the monster's mind, well, pretty things must float. And, right. of course, cute, you know, you cute see little the girl. Logic. Right? I mean, a, a cute little girl across from him, well, she yeah. must float too. So now that, you know, they had just thrown their last flower, there's nothing else to throw in the water. Mm-hmm. Monster, the creature picks up little Maria and um doesn't float. <laughs> yeah.
1: And apparently, this took a few takes, right? That she didn't quite fall right every time. So I, I, they had to they had to they had to chuck the little kid into the water a couple times in a row. Yeah, uh, there's but, some story about them bribing her with hard boiled eggs or something. I heard that. I mean, yeah, she
0: wanted a dozen hard boiled eggs, and then Whale ended up bringing her like two dozen because she did such a great job. Or, great. yeah, it's kind of a, a cute little story there.
1: Yeah, we don't let we don't uh, we don't let people pay their actors in hard boiled eggs anymore in, in Hollywood. <laughs> We've SAG has made sure of that. And and ironically, bringing up SAG, uh, Boris Karloff was one of the founding members of SAG along with a few other actors. He was a he was a lifelong proponent of, uh, equality and, and, e- and, and uh, fairness in employment for, uh, for actors in, in the film industry. I mean, God bless him.
0: He used his position, his newfound position as, you know, after this movie to really do some great, great things.
1: So yeah, yeah definitely. Shows. So, meanwhile, back in Goldstadt, there's you know the 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 wedding's, you know about to happen. Uh, Elizabeth uh, kind of seeks out Henry in the hallway and <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe this gives some credence to the, the idea that it's bad luck to see your 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 bride before the wedding
0: <laughs> yeah, she's she's having a lot of jitters. and you know, she almost reminded me of like Henry in, in those opening scenes, just yeah, just bubbling with, you know, this this nervous energy. And Elizabeth's yeah. almost having these this premonitions that something is going to happen and doesn't really know why she's feeling a certain way. Or yeah. I mean, I think at one point they says, you know, no one's heard from, from Dr. Waldman and Henry just pooh-poohs that immediately saying, yeah. Oh, he's always late. Yeah. But Elizabeth, for whatever reason is convinced that something is going to happen. Something is going to come between them.
1: And there's this idea in this and then, and then further in, um, in Bride of Frankenstein where Elizabeth is n- then played by a different actress that, that there's something medium ish about, elizabeth she's she's slightly mm. a little like in touch with something else too like there's interesting there's, 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 yeah. Sometimes very subtle yeah she's a little pressing yeah. Yeah.
0: interesting yeah i didn't i didn't equate it to, to brian but you're absolutely right very similar scene in that that she yeah there's some kind of a premonition that she yeah, is his vision yeah interesting yeah great point
1: yeah, yeah, yeah um so henry's solution to the problem is to is to lock her in the room <laughs> <I> know, right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, okay. uh I guess. I guess thinking that'll keep her safe. What he doesn't account for is the fact that there's there's uh, open windows on the other side of the room that open up, and the monster now uh, has has entered the room. And you know, he's it's a complicated thing. We're not exactly sure what his intent is. We're not sure. Does he know this is well? Uh, yeah. Baker's so we, bride. He has the scene with with
0: Elizabeth, and then I think there's either a knock on the door. So it's Victor, and he says, "You know, Doctor Waldman's been found dead." Yeah, and then that immediately oh, Henry Henry leaves the room and locks her in and says, "You know, di- you know, you stay here, that's darling." Is, yeah. And then shortly thereafter, he hears this growling. He's like, "Oh, the monsters in the house!
1: The monsters in the house!" Yeah. And this,
0: <laughs> and
1: meanwhile, poor May Clock is locked in this room. So then Henry's strategy then is to lock her in the room, um, not accounting for the fact that there are windows on the other side of the room that then open. And while Elizabeth is waiting for Henry and, and and worrying, and Henry and Victor and the other rest are searching the whole mansion, top to bottom. The creature enters through the through the doors. And there's a there's a great story where, where May Clark was was worried that she was going to be really terrified as as Karloff in the makeup came after her. And he told her he to watch his pinky finger and he would wiggle his pinky finger as he did it. And if she just focused on the pinky finger, that would help her get through the scene and stuff. And and if I don't quite see it too well, even in the in the Blu-ray version, I don't see the, the pinky wiggling too much. But I'm willing to accept that it was it's a true story. Yeah, It's not a all- true story.
0: It is a cute story. And yeah, I was born, it was as Kyle had said, you know, my my off camera hand, you're gonna see my little pinky wiggle. And yeah. yeah, I mean, you could see May. I mean, I'm sure that you know, when she first sees the monster and she just lets out that gasp yeah. and scream, yeah. like I'm mean, that might not have been a whole lot of acting.
1: Right. Yeah. She no, actually
0: she did look terrified.
1: And his again, we're not sure what his intent is. Is is he is he planning on killing her? Is he planning on kidnapping her? Is he planning on making her his bride? We don't we don't quite get the thing. They hear the scream, they run up and they 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 find her. And and she's passed out. Basically, he he apparently just scared her so much that that she she fainted. And maybe he decided to make an exit after that. Yeah, seems like people probably got to the room just in time. And it's mm-hmm. you know he probably could have choked
0: her out. I don't. Yeah, it, it's interesting what his motivation would have been. And you know you're going back to you know a lot of film historians that you know love and love this film. But everyone's common issue is how did the monster know that this was the Frankenstein yeah. castle or yeah. house? I mean, there's no way, right? Is it
1: just the biggest building he could find in maybe
0: season? So he this heard is a party. The, yeah, he heard a party going on. He was attracted to the noise, and
1: and, the, and this is what the truncation of the the book story into a seventy odd minute film does is we start we, we start losing a little bit of the the character arc for the the creature now too. Now the creature just started to turn into this like. Whereas just a few minutes before he was still this kind of innocent uh, character, now he's turning into like there's sinister intent in in this, and I and I think the idea is that he's now identified that here's his here's the guy who created him and abandoned him and allowed him to be tortured, and he's, he's kind of coming for some payback and we just don't have a, we don't have a narrative moment that, that lets us understand that jump where he, he starts doing that. But no,
0: you've got to make a lot of assumptions and this is something that Bride Frankenstein
1: really flushes out beautifully. Yeah, with, it has more time and has, more, has uh, more money yeah, and patience pr- for that and money. Yeah, exactly. Pretorius to, to, does to a great job. The, yeah. Yeah. So yeah and to, and, I, and you feel like maybe that's a good reason why whale would have said yes to that. Maybe this is his chance to really communicate mm-hmm. what he was better, what he was trying to to say in this first uh, 31 film
0: sure the third act probably the weakest of the acts and you know the monster doesn't have a whole lot to do and becomes a very one-dimensional
1: character yeah, yeah. it more, more falls into the 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 idea of the monster as we would see him in subsequent you know universal exactly films, yeah, uh, yeah. Now, now, now this is
0: like the Glenn strange monster almost yeah, yeah yeah
1: yeah um anyone almost could have played this at this point up, up until the end where that's where right you have some great moments um so it's it's a universal film so obviously what happens is a mob forms <laughs> with with torches, <laughs> torches and pitchforks. And, yep. So the next thing we have is uh, we see Ludwig carrying the body of his dead uh, daughter Maria back through the town and everyone's partying and stuff. And as soon as they see him, obviously they stop, they stop, they stop. He carries him to the, the Burgomaster's doorstep. And the Burgomaster says, why have you brought this poor child to me? And he's, he reveals that she was murdered. I don't know how he figures out that she was murdered. I'm not sure how everyone figures out she was murdered by the monster. But, but there's a supposition that, okay, we've got this thing running around loose this murderer that needs something done so it it being a universal film they form a mob it all happens extremely
0: quickly and again another yeah i mean what was there any evidence on her body or anything that would have led literally to believe she didn't just drown but yeah. again, yeah, I mean, we're going to Was gonna, we're a CSI,
1: go. you know, team right. that figured out that he had foot? She had fingerprints on her throat or something. No, yeah, sure.
0: which it, I mean, obviously the the monster picked her up, you know, gently enough and, and tossed. Yeah, her. and tossed her. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no physical evidence on on the body, but we're going to go with it again. This is 1931. We've hey. got to keep. We've got to keep moving along and hit the points. But yeah, It's, yeah, it's a do-
1: it's a myth more than a narrative, and you have to appreciate it. In That's that, right. In that format, I think. So um, this so the mob forms and they've got the pitchforks and the and the torches and everything. They're going to form into into three teams. The burgomaster is going to lead one. Ludwig's going to lead one. And Henry Frankenstein is going to lead one. And of so all the, the aggrieved parties, sort of.
0: Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of the lead, You know, the two leaders of, um, you know, it, I guess, with Henry being the Baron's son and, and the burgomaster, yeah. then this poor man who just lost his daughter. So they're going to split up
1: and search mm-hmm. the lakeside and the mountainside and, you know, just kind of the, the landslide. Right, so, right, right. And, and and here's this other final failing on, on Henry's part is that he's, yeah, I guess he's brave enough to lead one of the search parties to hunt down this creature, but he's not brave enough to admit that he's the one who created it. This is all his fault. um He still hasn't fessed up to that. So so that's kind of his tragedy is, is that he's, he doesn't accept the responsibility that, that that little girl's death is actually because of him.
0: Yeah, there's a lot that you almost have to just... Just have to take, I mean, starting with probably the, you know, Ludwig bringing in his murdered daughter to the search party, that things seem to happen without any kind, you know, anything happening on screen that right, right. you know people know that there's you know this murderer or a monster Exactly. And at one point I think the burgomaster says you know you know who's the fiend we're going to find this fiend and everyone seems to be yelling and I I replayed the scene a couple of times to see if they were saying a monster or right but whatever it's it, it kind of is what it is you know I don't want to overthink it too too much
1: but yeah and 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 possibly there's there's things that happen that don't happen on camera that we don't see or right, exactly. like that. maybe maybe he's he, the monster's done this to other people and they've seen mm-hmm. him. And so there's an idea of, of what this thing is. Right. Um, but in, in essence that, you know, we return to kind of the, the look and appearance of the beginning of the film where that has this very um, like play like thing on the, on a Hill with it, with a scrim backdrop with the clouds painted on and stuff that, that doesn't always totally sell, but it's, it's, yeah. it's gorgeous nonetheless. And they start pursuing that, you know, there's, there's uh Guys hunting down the road with torches, and there's guys on boats, uh, you know, with torches that's looking for be- the monster. Beautiful
0: scenes, like the, that lakeside yeah. scene with the torches and the guys in the rowboats. I mean, those are some fantastic
1: yeah. shots. Yeah, I want to say that that's maybe on the part of the Universal River they used for. Creature from the Black Lagoon, but I would have to. I would welcome anybody to either confirm or or refute that. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if it. If it was. If, I
0: was almost wondering if that was like Malibu Lake where Maria had drowned, or I could I, be. I, I
1: mean, they could have shot it up there, but I, I, I don't. Have think, no idea. they only shot that one day, and I think that would have been a bigger. Okay. Uh, Thing. That might have been second unit as well. They might. Someone else might have directed those other scenes. That might not have been Whale directing those those bits. And then the third party that Henry's leading is going up into these hellscape mountains that, that you know that are reminiscent of where where the Watchtower was. Universal does these it's like a it's like the top of a volcano there's no plants there's no vegetation or anything like that there's these sharp craggy awful looking rocks and stuff and it's this amazing hunt like cat and mouse game now because the the creature's up there and he's hiding behind rocks as as the parties go up and down and they're they're searching for him with bloodhounds and everything um and he's watching what they're doing and stuff and they're they're just pursuing him higher and higher up this up this hill until post-apocalyptic landscape like you said it means nothing yeah and universal specialized in in taking things places that should have been probably lush and green and beautiful and just making them these these <laughs> they, they I mean it looks and and you have to imagine like you know this is coming after World War 1 and Americans had seen a lot of images of of the battlefields you know of, of no man's land in World War 1 and some of the, the the things we see like in Dracula the the settings in Dracula and this and in the Black Cat especially really look like what's what's left over from a battlefield where the trees have been blasted and the rocks have been ruptured and stuff it's the 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 earth itself has has been violated and and i think it's a perfect setting for the finale for the film
0: and you can see i mean universal up until they really got their horror thing was you know they made a lot of war films so you can imagine Mm -hmm. if going back into the you know the storage area i'm sure they had plenty of war torn
1: and the yeah and yep. the prop, the prop guys knew how to do that too. Or exactly. The, or the set, the set yep. deck guys knew how to do that. Yeah. All right. Very well. And it, and it, it serves this well again. I mean, if they were having a huge fight in the middle of like a daisy field, you, you kind of don't get the, the same impact, right? It has to be, the environment has to reflect the barrenness of what is going on with the characters. Yeah. It's all very stark and yeah, but it's a great right. finale. And yeah, like you said,
0: Henry, um, for whatever reasons, he's with the search party and everyone, stays together of course except Henry he kind of goes off on his own and
1: No Henry... no this way this way oh yeah, no, no, no.
0: For, whatever, for whatever reason he's not following the bloodhounds he's going to go
1: off on his way. own which is the first mistake and then he comes around at that thing and there's there's the creature sure this creature waiting for him and just a great
0: showdown you know that just that still shot of Henry looking at the creature the creature looking back almost like you know
1: a, ch- a chess match yeah and, and they both um, know what's about to happen yeah it's it's yep. this is it was inevitable that, that these two come back together and, and at, a, at the, a, the end and, and uh, the thing. Um, and, you know, and, and they do such a good job again, of, of making Karloff so tall and imposing. Um, but the thing, and I wanted to say this earlier, and I, I want to catch up just a bit, is that, you know, the book, the, the creature is like seven or eight feet tall and, 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 you know, hideous and, and, and all, it's a little mishappen and, and, you know, everything. The, the film does a neat thing where it, it it takes looking back on it from a contemporary, you know, 21st century lens, it takes away a lot of the monstrousness of the creature and and the creature less less than a, a titan or a, or a, or a giant. While he's big, he just he just seems like a like a, a bad simulacrum of a human being. He's 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 not super powerful. He's really strong, but he's not he's not immensely powerful right yet. He becomes more of a of a juggernaut as the films go on, and 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 people like Glenn Strange and Lon Chaney start playing him, who are physically gigantic themselves. At this point, that the monster really is just a dark version of Henry. You can kind of see that shadow thing that the the plays were were you know so adamant about about. Pushing, Yeah. And again,
0: I always kind of equated to the fact that this monster is still fairly new to this earth. Yeah. Like he hadn't been created. I mean, I'm not sure how much time has passed, maybe a couple right. of weeks. I mean, he's right. still, a, you know, a new being and, you know, exactly. still trying to learn how to walk and doesn't, I mean, his muscle, you know, I'm sure have atrophied over, over time. And he's just, he was a corpse.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah for um, has coordination and everything yeah. like but but it it, it, use... it pro- he proves that he's he's figured some stuff out because the the two come together and and start tussling and and he's obviously Henry is obviously overmatched in, in strength by, by his creation.
0: The monster, you know, gives him a good shot across the jar. Henry falls unconscious and um, prior to falling unconscious, he's, you know, I think when Henry and the monster are kind of tied up um, in a little bit of a wrestling match, he's yelling, you know, kind of down the cliff and the other folks on the search parties can hear him. So they're immediately running to his, to Henry's location. So at this point, Henry's, Unconscious, the monster has knocked him out. So the monster, you know, throws him up over his shoulder and starts carrying a Henry away to get away yeah. from the search party. And of course, this brings us to our, you know, almost final scene in the windmill. Just a right. fantastic, fantastic shot. So yeah. the monster is carrying Henry to this windmill, and the shots show. The search party not too far behind maybe 50 yards you know 60 mm. yards behind the monster and henry so it's almost this race to get to the windmill right. the monster comes in barricades the door and then as you had mentioned jim um the you know we can get into it a little bit more of the monster
1: or kowloff having to carry clive up these yeah you the, know, the dead weight laps. of 140 pound colin yeah. clive actor yeah yeah up yeah. these yeah. stairs and it and it did it it he had to do multiple times there's a story somewhere about uh, that whale was mad at Karloff at this point, and he made him do it a bunch of times just out of spite. And I'm not sure if that's. You know, I had heard that too, not. and I think it
0: sounded like they might have had a personal relationship, and you know, yeah. romantically, I mean. So they might. Yeah. You know, whatever lovers. There, there might,
1: there might have been some, some something there. Or or, or, and or, or, often, yeah, I've
0: read too that Whale was jealous of all the attention that the monster was getting, and yeah. you know, this was kind of his revenge
1: on Karloff that he made him. I think it's yeah. upwards of like twelve times of carrying. Yeah, something up. like that. Yeah, you kind of yeah. punished the guy a little bit, and right. And obviously, right, right. obviously, in one of those times, something went because again, yeah, Karloff had something like a, like a dozen spinal surgeries yeah, in his I life think, after this and stuff. He it really, actually, it really. Sacrificed himself to for the role, but he did it. I mean, you know. Yeah, I think Sarah mentioned he broke his back, and he was
0: actually unable to go to the screen the first screening because he was. I think he just had back surgery.
1: Poor guy, poor guy, and and back surgery in the '30s too. Not back surgery now. So let's just. Call what it is. Jeez. Right. Um, so yeah, but there's there's this amazing idea of this windmill up in the top of this 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 hill that, that you know it's, it's a visual graphic. It's, a, oh, it's, it's a silhouette that is instantly identifiable in its two states: in its original state, and then obviously in its full-on burning state. Yeah, Karloff goes in, drags him in. The, a a beam kind of falls and wedges the door shut. So so it's a kind of a lucky happenstance and hauls him up into the whatever the top of a windmill is called. I'm not exactly sure, but it's the gristing part, I think, where there's there's the big wheel that the the wind turns the sails, and the sails turn this wheel, and and it makes grain or whatever the purpose of a windmill is. I'm not, <laughs> not exactly sure. <laughs> a windmill does, so like, I guess. It's like some turbines. That.
0: Yeah, some turbines moving, and it' a great shot. It's like a slatted, almost turbine spinning counterclockwise. And yeah, you know, just that a wonderful scene of oh yeah, Henry and the so, so the
1: villagers are, are are close on their heels. They're outside. Carl's looking down at them. He drops Henry, and he's looking down at him. He realizes he's, he's kind of he's on the balcony. He, he realizes he's trapped and stuff. Henry wakes up and he tries to crawl towards the the hatch to go down. Karloff manages to stop him, uh, and the two. Uh, have a, have another scuffle and there's again this this amazing scene where they're looking at each other through the the spinning spokes of this wheel oh, that's fantastic. just you know the two sides of one coin or whatever that it's, it's an incredible scene it's it silent it's quiet mm-hmm. it's it's fraught with 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 the, the the resentment the the creature has for henry just for bringing him to life the creature doesn't want to be alive and henry made it be alive and it's been all downhill from there for the guy uh yeah. for both of them i mean this this one act that Henry committed to has destroyed both of them. This is the
0: monster's redemption time. And, you know, watching this movie, how can you not almost be pulling for the monster to get his little pound of flesh?
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, you know? really do understand it. And and again, I, I am always very sympathetic to the monster and, and unsympathetic to, to, to the creator. Uh, in, in all these iterations because I do feel like the the sympathy for the thing that doesn't belong. I think growing up I was a little bit of a different kid and I get I get that. And I think that's what again is so uh it, it makes everyone be able to apply their own context to the creature and 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 feel feel sympathy for him. And that's what Universal does so well is is create these sympathetic monsters that that you you understand that these these creatures have no place in the world like the family opera or or the creature from the Black Lagoon, or, or the Wolfman.
0: Yeah, I mean, this, again, this is what makes, to me, just Frankenstein such a special story. It just, it really is so deep. And you can, t- you know, <laughs> look at it from so many different angles. Yeah. If you yeah. just think like, a little bit different, if you were, you know, whatever, a little, you know, displaced in, you know, some part of your life, like you said, if, you know, circumstances happen to you that were out of your control, this is, you know, you can relate to this monster. No, it it, it go- is,
1: and it, and you can see why there, there are there are people who make their entire life's work, the study of this one character this one story the monster throws off you know he picks up henry and he he hurls him off the windmill and he kind of lands ugly on one of the blades of the windmill which again that's probably that same dummy right it i don't know if it's the same dummy it's certainly a dummy it is
0: a it's nasty a- it hits me that that dummy. i'm not sure
1: how you were you you get you survived that but then he, he topples off and the the crowd gathers and then oh here he is here he is but, of course, now that Henry is not trapped in the windmill and it's just a the creature, they decide, well, the, the thing to do is to set fire to the windmill and, and destroy the creature.
0: So I think in the original, I mean, well, I know this for a fact, the original story had Henry dying. And you yes. have to wonder, I mean, obviously it was retconned a little, not, I don't want to say retconned, but, you know, the right. story changed to allow Henry to live. But truly, I mean, how do you survive a fall like that? Never mind just hitting those blades. And yeah. then he must have fallen 50. It tumbles
1: years. 50, Look, 60 I, feet. I don't think it helps it looks like because the dummy's kind of floppy. It looks like every bone in his <laughs> body has been been broken, right? Um, it is it a violent. Like, like he's just a, a flesh bag of a of a of a pure totally, person at this point. Totally,
0: it is a yeah, yeah. it is a violent fall. Um,
1: um, and you have this amazingly poignant, sad moment where the the monster's trapped up in the windmill, and he's running around inside, and the the oh, flounder arrives, and he's shrieking and he's screaming, and he's terrified. And and again, it's that it's that understanding of the fear that this you know th- this creature that has instilled fear in the whole countryside now is terrified. He's just alone um, in skin. Yeah, yeah it, With the thing he hates more than anything else is is ever since Fritz with the torch. It, it hates fire so much. And and ironically or or or, or poetically that that is it, you know the means of its end at least in. In this film, uh, we obviously find out that it's not. But that's also the thing we love about the Frankenstein monster, I think, is that, you know, every time he goes down, he comes back up. He doesn't he doesn't stay down.
0: Not to reiterate myself again and again, but just the beauty of this of the story is that, you know, you, you could just be hit from so many different angles. I mean, to me, this is just such a sad ending of this movie. I think yeah, it's, it's, it's very tragic. It is. It really is.
1: And, and but, you know, uh, buoyed up just a little bit by this little tag uh, we have at the end after we see the, you know, we cut to a really wide shot of the of the windmill burning and the people milling about it and stuff. And I think the little, I think the people are probably little figures or dummies or something it's a, that oh, I think are doing beat- something to move I mean, what a, a bit. What a
0: beautiful shot though.
1: Oh my yeah, gosh. I don't think that's, I don't know if that's real. That might, I, I mean, they built a. I think they built the bottom half, at least the windmill, but I believe the other half is is some kind of large scale model. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I'd love to I'd love to find out about that.
0: Yeah, me too. Um,
1: and then yeah, and then we have this little tag at the end with you know back in the in the uh, Castle Frankenstein, not with Colin Clive, who was not available when they decided to do this. It was it was like a pickup. They shot it after you know, I think they, there was an understanding that the end of the movie was a bit of a downer, obviously. <laughs>
0: Yeah, again, he was meant to die. So Clive, yeah. you know, at the the film wrapped up, and Clive went back to England. Yeah, and yeah. I think you know, there's a couple of initial test screenings that it was just you know such a dire downer. A decision that, was made. Yeah, yeah so
1: the, the, so we so see this little tag of and and uh, in his way in the background in the room, and Elizabeth is talking to him, and and Baron Frankenstein comes out the door, and they've got. Uh, you know the maids and and you know help help staff and everything are there and and we have a reprisal of the you know a toast to the, a son to the house of Frankenstein toast right.
0: Yeah, if you look closely, you can tell, and I was looking pretty closely this time, yeah. so it's an actor, he's actually a cowboy actor from Universal, his name was Robert Livingston, so he was oh, wow. sitting in the bed, and his, his head was kind of turned facing Elizabeth, but yeah, clearly mm-hmm. not Clive, but... It's, it's not, um, that,
1: that very, because that very, Colin Clive, not a lot of people look like Colin Clive, so he has a notable uh, uh, visage. Yeah, so you have this slightly... Um, wrapped up ending and stuff. And that's, that's Frankenstein, 1931.
0: Just a wonderful film. And it's so complicated. And I mean, gosh, you can just really special film for me. And I mean, I've always, I've seen this film probably a hundred times, but yeah, you know, coming back for this podcast and kind of putting on a different set of, you know, different mindset, different set of eyes on it, just made me appreciate it even, even more.
1: Yeah. I, I, uh, I took part in a, in a little lecture, uh, uh, presentation a couple of years ago, uh, talking with, with, again, like with people with advanced degrees who do nothing but focus on Frankenstein pretty much. And, and it was pretty intimidating to talk to them. But I I felt I was, they were proponents of the book. And I felt like I was there representing the movie uh, because none of them were, were filmmakers. And the, the big takeaway for me, my my personal investment is, is, is that I would not be doing what I do for a living now, if if it had not been for this film and for the, and then tangentially from the, the book it's based on. But seeing this film and knowing about it and reading about it, even as a kid, it, it sparked my interest in, in film. It sparked my interest in like kind of the, the gothic. Narrative and storytelling. Maybe I'd be doing something similar artistically, making monster movies and 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 writing, you know, dark fiction. I do this, I think, because of the influence this thing had on me at an early age. You could say it was a good influence or a bad influence, depending, but it definitely was. It definitely was important in my creation. And again, I'll just say one more time: like, I think it is the prototype for if Dracula was the initial. Test balloon of like how you make a, a monster movie. Frankenstein is the prototype for a, a moralistic tale with monstrous elements that that you can track through, you know, the slasher films. You, use. you can track into like Guillermo del Toro's, you know, work recently. It, it goes on and on and on, and 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 it is indelibly part of western culture you can't separate it now like everybody you say frankenstein and it has a meaning
0: yeah i mean with dracula it was very you know black and white you know you have good and bad frankenstein Mm -hmm. monster it's it's not that easy there's a lot of grays and that's just our culture that's that's every one of us i mean we have our you know our good sides our bad sides our Mm -hmm. good days bad days and that's to your point i mean it was special for you special for me jim um i mean how many movies have been made from the story Frankenstein right. over the last hundred years? I mean, exactly.
1: I mean, it is its own subgenre. I mean, Frankenstein movies are their own thing. The merchandising—it's—it's it's a billion-dollar franchise. It's—it's—he's an icon, and everyone can bring their own version of their context to the monsters. Is the monster—a uh, cautionary tale—is like like that. This such and such will be your Frankenstein, or is—is it—is it—is it a—is sto- it a story of innocence turned away and and left to fend for itself and and, and inevitably like you know and uh, there's no victimized yeah is he a monster or a victim he's both
0: yeah there's no wrong answer could be you know all of the above which makes it you know that that much special so that's so good yeah I'm glad, i'll be honest with you jim i'm glad this one's done because i <laughs> it was i was i was I, nervous about doing this one. i was there's nervous lot I, of... yeah there's a lot of responsibility if you're covering frankenstein
1: I agree. And, and that's why yeah. this one, this episode is probably so long, uh, but but it, it was worth it. And I'm glad we we did nail it down so that we can move on to, you know, not the, the other films that, that came out because of the success of this film.
0: Definitely. No, I think we did a, a very good job. Very proud of the work we've done here today. So yeah, good thank job. You so Thanks. All right, guys. All right. So tuning into the Bogo Pass, Hour podcast. We will talk soon.
1: Thank you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. But the fun does not stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera
0: Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino.
1: The music was composed by Sean Poole. Opening and closing narration are by me, Cat Herons. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast.